Oh, guess what movie I watched with my kids last night? Um, Friday the 13th. Not yet. My daughter wants to watch Jaws, though. She's 12. What do you think? Fair age? For Jaws, yeah. There's no sex in it. Yeah. It is pretty scary, but it's not super gory. Well, the one guy gets eaten. (laughs) So there's that. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, no, man, we watched Terminator 2 last night. Oh, man. It was awesome. That's great. It was awesome. I saw that, yeah, pretty young. It's, it's still one of my favorite movies. First movie I ever cried to, I think. Oh, my daughter was bawling at the end, <laughs> man. She was <laughs> yeah. so upset. She was like, fuck you. Why did you make me watch this? <laughs> <laughs> and then my son was like, that movie was awesome. I'm like, I know, dude. I'm like, get ready for Commando next weekend. Oh, nice. <laughs> You are now listening to the RF Generation Playcast. The Playcast is the place where the single banana and I, Grey Ghost 81, discuss the monthly community playthrough games selected by us and shared by a community of gamers on rfgeneration.com and social media platforms like Twitter. This month, we continue our October tradition of playing a horror-themed game for the Halloween season. This year, we settled on Fatal Frame 2 Crimson Butterfly, the standalone prequel to Tecmo's Ghost Photography franchise. Is this a game you'll want to frame on your mantle, or is it something you can't picture yourself playing? Stay tuned for our analysis. You can listen to the show on Apple Podcasts and Podbean, or simply visit rfgplaycast.com. On Twitter, I'm at RFG Playcast and Rich is at The Single Banana. Most importantly, be sure to log on to RFGeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show. Thank you as always for listening, and now, on with the Playcast. Oh, 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 oh,
Check, check. Check, check, check. All right. I'm good, man. All right. Won't be getting that uh, echoey sound that I got last time. Ugh, man, that grated on me listening to that. It wasn't that bad, and it's more comparable to the room that I'm in, so it made me feel more welcome. <laughs> oh, I don't know, man. I, I I feel like yours isn't echoey at all. I feel like yours is super clear. Oh, thank you. It's weird because there's nothing soft in this room whatsoever, so it's interesting. I think it kind of echoes a little bit, but if you don't hear it, hopefully the listeners don't mind, then I guess it's fine. You know what really pissed me off? is how good your friend's track sounded. <laughs> Yeah, you know what? He texted me and he was like, I don't have anything to record this with. Can I just do it on my phone? And I was like, yeah, sure, dude. And (laughs) because I didn't want to tell him, no, like we make everybody do audacity. You got to do it our way. Do it the right way. But whatever phone he's got, it recorded really good. Yeah, I know. Maybe we should start using our phones to record. There you go. I could just lay back on the couch and do this podcast (laughs) into my phone. That would be fun. So what's been going on, man? Well... Speaking of laying back, I was in a dentist chair for four hours yesterday. Ugh. Yeah, no, I was, I was worried we might not be able to record tonight. Yeah, I'm glad we were able to pin down a recording. It actually wasn't that bad. And as I said on Twitter, I got what I deserved. And what I deserved was the consequences of not going to the dentist for so long that I can't remember. And I had fillings in my mouth that I didn't know about when I walked into that dentist office. So (laughs) I don't know if it was when I was a teenager, when I was in my 20s, the last time I went to a dentist, but I was way overdue. Luckily, nothing too major, just about eight cavities, a bunch of fillings and a crown, and I'll be done in two weeks. I did one half of my mouth yesterday, and the other half will be uh, two weeks from now. So. I feel for you, man. And uh, I've had some bad dental problems recently as well. I don't know if I told you, but I broke a tooth off. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We did talk about that. Yeah, around Halloween. We were doing our outside movie thing and uh, bit down on a piece of popcorn. And so we didn't really up our dental insurance this year because we knew our daughter's going to have to have braces next year. So we're like, oh, we'll just do it next year. Well, of course, I'm going to have to have a crown now there. And then another of my teeth is cracked and very sensitive on the other side. So I'm going to have to have a crown there. So the good news is they filled in the hole with just like some temporary stuff. And my wife's like, you think you could make it through Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners before <laughs> you know you get all that fixed in the new year? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to give it a shot, man, because the one crown is like 1400 out of pocket. And I'm just like going to try to uh, just push through, you know, because I'm not having any pain where that one was uh, broken off. So uh, if I can just hold it together until the new year, we'll be set. It's weird. I guess I'm I'm not well versed in all this, but I guess dental care is the one thing. Or it's one of the specializations where you really can't go self-pay. That's part of the reason that I didn't go for so long is that I just didn't have insurance. I didn't care enough to get it. I was lazy, whatever. And finally, my wife did the wifely thing. And she said, uh, I have put you on all of my insurances at my job. So you're going to go get your teeth fixed. You're going to get your eye exam. Uh, We're going to start getting regular doctor's checkups and all this stuff. So I had... No choice in the matter. So I am now insured. And yeah, I've done things like vision and eye checkups and just paid out of pocket. I've gone to the doctor and paid out of pocket. And actually, my wife had a catastrophic medical thing a couple of years ago mm. and we didn't have insurance, but we just negotiated it down until it was paid off uh, mm-hmm. with no insurance. So 
we're in a different world now. My wife just made the decision that we should be insured. So we're trying that now. So yeah. big help on the dental side is, is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, we switched dentists and um, they were pretty cool about it. They said they could break our payments down, you know, into like three payments, which I thought was, was pretty cool, you know, if I were to do that. So uh, yeah. my insurance just doesn't cover any type of major stuff right now. So, uh, yeah, man, we're just falling apart. <laughs> Completely falling apart. Uh, first my eyes, now my damn teeth. And uh, it's my back a few years ago. So, uh, man, I tell you, when you hit 40, it's no picnic. <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite there yet. I have until next summer. Well, speaking of things that make me gnash my teeth, how about our good friends at GameStop? Oh, man. Dude, I heard this story uh, on the chat, man. I can't wait to hear about this. All right. So I go into GameStop. I'm there picking up a game. Actually, Bioshock Collection. It was like 15 bucks. I was going to play it on PS3, but the PS3 is in my son's room and the PS4 is in the, you know, the new gaming room. So I just decided just to shell out and go ahead and get it. You know, I always like to play the original, but I, you know, went ahead and got the collection on PS4. So that should be interesting. So I get up to the counter and they're like, would you like to use your $5 off that you have for this month? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll go ahead and use that. And then they give me the total and it's like almost $20. And I'm like, whoa, this game is only, you know, this price. How did it get to that? And they were like, oh, that's for the game protection. Mm -hmm. And I was like, really? Like you just added that on there without asking me if I wanted it? He's like, well, I told you here at the end that I did. And I said, dude, that's dirty. Yeah. And if it wasn't that I needed the game for the playthrough, I would have just walked out. Yeah, that's really messed up. Yeah. And the funny thing is, I posted something on Twitter about it the other day. And I've, I've done this before with things that made me mad about GameStop. And, you know, they don't respond, of course, to anything like that on uh, Twitter or social media. But uh, our good buddy Adam said that his wife went to the store and they did the same thing to her. So apparently this is policy. And the guy that rung me up said that's what they have them do. And I was like, that's dirty, man. I just would never do that to someone. And if they were like tracking the computer, I would just put it in there and then immediately take it out before I told them what their total was. I mean, how many people buy something and just don't even think about that insurance being added on or don't pay attention to their total until maybe when they get home and see their receipt, you know, and then they're mm -hmm. like, oh, well, this sucks. But what am I going to do? Go back and ask for a few bucks back. And, you know, they're kind of taking advantage and making extra money off people. That's really bad. I agree. And there have been many pieces written about GameStop and all the bad things they've done over so many years. And every once in a while, there's like a pro GameStop article written that is like, oh, you know, but if we lose GameStop, there's one less brick and mortar place and you'll just be forced online and forced into Walmart and Target and, and whatever. And it's like, at this point, GameStop can really go fuck off. Like they, yeah. they really cannot be defended at this point. I feel for everybody who works there because they're just forced into these uncomfortable situations. Like before they were just shilling the protection plan. Now they're sneaking it onto your bill of sale. That's totally screwed up. So yeah, GameStop can go fly a kite. I understand what the employees are being forced to do. And I, I do feel bad for them because like you said, it does make for uncomfortable conversations. But at the same time, you don't have to buy into that. You can get around that sort of stuff. If the job's making you do that and putting you in that sort of situation, just go find a new one. It's not worth it just because you like being around video games. And to be honest, I hope Target and Walmart crushes their ass. Because if that happens, 
they're going to be more retro game stores that are going to be getting stock. Yeah, that's a good point. And the small businesses are going to increase in this conglomerate that is GameStop that has pretty much monopolized the market will be gone. And I am quite all right with that. I'd rather support local anyway. Gotcha. And for what it's worth, on a different note, the Bioshock (laughs) collection is not really a major change from the original versions of the game. It's not a full remake like the Shadow of the Colossus thing. It's just an HD up-res of the original game. So you're not really going against your rule, I would say. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Well, speaking of assholes... It's always a good segue. This is a good salty episode so far. It really is. Raging against dental work and uh, GameStop. (laughs) And, you know, now we're raging against things our asshole friends pointed out. Sean, did you have anything this month? I actually didn't. Every once in a while I'll listen and I'll think, oh, I should throw that in. But I I don't write them down and I can't remember them. But hopefully they'll come up in, in conversation. Yeah. I didn't really catch anything. However... I did get a tweet about our top 70 list, and this person that posted this didn't mean anything harmful in posting this tweet. And I won't mention the person because they're they're a friend of ours, but it sort of said that, you know, our lists were made up of dead white guys. Just like little jab, just kind of a fun thing. And I know it wasn't serious, but it did bother me a bit because... I don't know. I guess when I'm making these lists, I don't really think about my list in that way. I realize that I have a giant hole in certain parts of my listening. I would say like 70s R&B is something that I really lack a lot of knowledge in. It's not what I grew up listening to. But within the last year, year and a half, I've been listening to a lot of it. But nothing that I've listened to really came up. But in defense, I mean, I put a Herbie Hancock album on there. And then you put Betty Wright's album on there. Yeah, didn't make my list, but that was my song of the 70s. Right. So I don't want our listeners to think that we're not considering all types of music. But when I make my list, a lot of times I don't really go and listen to a lot of external albums. I usually just go from my wheelhouse and things that I've always listened to or always enjoyed. So... Maybe I should take a little bit deeper dive and do like you do and listen to a lot of newer stuff in preparation for it. But, uh, you know, I just want our listeners out there to know that any omission of anyone or any artist or group due to race or anything like it's, it's not purposeful. It's just this is the stuff that I've grown up on and I've listened to. And I, I do realize that there is a um, void in some of my music and especially um, a lot of the older music. So uh, I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, I feel that. And when I was making my list, I did listen to a range of types of music and regions of the world that the music came from and so on and so forth. But when it came down to it, my criteria was what I said it was on the episode last month, which was that I kind of just sifted through my memories of these albums when I was growing up and there just wasn't room for something like... Uh, you know, Adonis Summer, which I listened to a lot of in my research, mm-hmm. or like I was listening to shit like Mini Ripperton and like all this like easy <laughs> listening stuff too. So, yeah. I mean, I really went out there. I listened to the Abyssinians, which are like this obscure reggae band. I know I'm just kind of name dropping here, but I'm not apologizing for my list, but I just want to say I, I did my like diligence as far as like trying to find something new. And uh, when it came down to it, I just settled more with what I know 
than I would usually do in a decade or a year list. So I'm with you, man. I just think it was just kind of an offhanded tweet. I wouldn't take it too personally. Oh, no, I didn't. Not at all. I didn't feel like there's any malice behind it whatsoever. Yeah. And I don't think any of are any of the guys on either one of our lists dead? I, Meatloaf is alive and well. Jimmy Page is alive and well. <laughs> uh, but I will say this. I did pick up an album this past week that I'm completely in love with, and I think it would have made my list. I picked up an Ike and Tina Turner album. It's called Working Together. Have you ever listened to any of the stuff that Tina Turner did in the 70s with Ike? No, not at all. Oh my gosh, dude, it is so good. It's so good. My wife and I have been listening to this Working Together album all week, almost every night, and it's really, really good. So if you really love some like heavy, like intense funk R&B, I would definitely suggest this album. And that's, uh, it's an album, it was actually 1970, so it barely made the cutoff. But I did want to mention it. But yeah, again, um, I didn't feel like the tweet had any malice in it at all. It just kind of took me back a little bit. And I was like, you know, kind of questioning my motives in myself and, you know, kind of had to do a little soul searching. You know, why did I not have some of these albums on the list? But, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, I'm going to pick what I like and what I'm comfortable with and what I've heard and what I would recommend to other people. So uh, that's just what I wanted to say about that. And I did want to bring it up. And, uh, you know, I, I appreciate the person that tweeted this, even pointing it out. That's yeah. cool. I think it's important to think like whatever we put in the show notes or in the tweets about the episodes or whatever, we might say top albums of whatever, but I always treat the lists as my favorite, my five favorite albums of whatever, my, you know, my favorite three albums of whatever year. Because why? Because I can't listen to 10 million albums that came out in the 1970s. I'm just going to go with what I'm familiar with. Well, speaking of music, uh, why don't we go ahead and get into this month's concert cast topic. Now, Sean, the month before, we did best movie soundtracks done by one artist or one band. And so we were trying to think up a topic this time, and we said, well, how about we do top five compilations? Now, this doesn't have to be a movie soundtrack. This could be any compilation, any album with various artists on it. Yeah. And so you and I, we've come up with a list of our top five. And uh, yeah, it should be a lot of fun to do this one. You want to go first? Yes. And I will say I'm very excited about this list. And my criteria for this list is pretty much the same as last month. This is actually all stuff that I'm familiar with. I actually have so many favorite compilations that it was hard to narrow it down to this five. So I actually didn't go out and try to find new stuff. So in this instance, these are all familiar to me. There's no uh, wild cards or, you know, new stuff that I discovered. And we discussed, even though film soundtracks can be considered compilations, we agreed to not go crazy on the film soundtracks because that could be its own list one day. Mm -hmm. However, you said there's absolutely one soundtrack that I'm going to have in my list. So I thought to myself, okay, I'll sneak one on my list. So my number five is the soundtrack from the movie Angus. It's this kind of obscure family comedy. I remember it, man. Yeah. Yeah. So the movie's not that bad. It's not like my favorite movie I've ever seen, but 
I guess it's worth checking out. It's a nice, again, like a family-oriented movie, teenage comedy, like non-raunchy teenage comedy. Anyway, the soundtrack came out in 1995, and it features many Lookout Records artists like Green Day and the Riverdales, Tilt, and Pansy Division. Like, a lot of Lookout bands are on this soundtrack. But also, Ash has two songs on it. Have you ever heard Ash? I've heard of the band. I don't know that I've heard any of their music. They're a really good, like, power pop group, uh, and they have two really good songs on here. And also, there's a really good Weezer song called You Gave Your Love to Me Softly. Weezer, they get a special notice from me for their songs that are on soundtracks back in this era, because also on the Mallrats soundtrack, there's a song called Suzanne which is one of Weezer's best songs ever. <laughs> so they were doing well with their B-sides and compilation contributions back then. But on this one, it's You Gave Your Love to Me Softly. Great song. There's also a few bands I don't like on here, like the Goo Goo Dolls, but the Goo Goo Dolls song that's on here is really good. So it's just top to bottom, a really good track listing, and I would highly recommend it if you're into uh, mid-90s alternative and punk. Cool, man. Well, so that I know the rules of this list, are we going like from five to number one? Is that what we're doing? To me, we're always counting down. Yeah, so that's my number five. Okay. Usually I'm just kind of all over the board. You know, I don't have like a top one, but I think for this list, I definitely have a number one. So um, I will start with my number five, and it took me a while to come up with this. Like you, I really didn't want to use a lot of movie soundtracks, but... I am using two, and I felt like this one uh, was a good one to put in here, and one that I listened to a ton during high school. As most people were in high school, and probably yourself included, I was really obsessed with the movie Dazed and Confused. I thought it was such a wonderful film, and, you know, just kind of showed the experience in the 70s. But the soundtrack for that film is off the wall amazing. Just some great 70s classic rock, funk, even Alice Cooper is on the soundtrack, and What's even cooler is they did two soundtracks. They did Dazed and Confused, and they did even more Dazed and Confused. So I'm going to lump those two together for my list and call that one compilation because I think they go together. But um, incredible mix of songs. And if you're just into awesome 70s music, I highly suggest picking up both of these albums. Have you heard these, Sean? I haven't, but when I was discussing this topic with my wife, she brought it up, the Days in Confused cool. soundtrack, and she even mentioned that there were two albums, so that's pretty cool. That was one of her choices. You'll have to tell her that I picked it. I will. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right, so let's go to my number four. So a compilation can be a tribute album. So my number four is a tribute album. It's called Where Is My Mind? A Tribute to the Pixies. Oh, cool. So this actually has two of the groups that I discussed in the One Hit Wonders Who Deserved Better conversation that we had. Not a Surf does a cover of Where's My Mind, and Super Drag does Wave of Mutilation on this album. Nice. Uh, there's also a crazy version of Gigantic by Real Big Fish. Now, Real Big Fish was a ska band, but they do this really like bugged out techno version of Gigantic, and it's amazing. And also, this album has the rare, to me, this is my personal opinion, maybe controversial, the rare cover that is better than the original 
And again, it's Weezer with their version of Valoria, which is an amazing song. Pixie's version is great, but I think the Weezer version is better. It's just what they did with the song, they Weezerized it, and it's so, so good. So yeah, Rich, I think you would like this if you have never heard it. It's a pretty great tribute album to an awesome band. Nice. And you'll remember a few years ago, I saw Weezer and the Pixies together. Yeah. And the Pixies actually opened up for Weezer and it just really pissed me off. So, uh, yeah, that's interesting <laughs> that you say there's a Weezer song that's uh, better than a Pixies. I'll uh, be sure to not listen to that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. For my number four. This was an album that my roommate and I listened to in college all the time. It's a fantastic compilation of rap music from that era, and it's Death Row's Greatest Hits from 1996. This album has all the big hits by Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Ice Cube, Tupac, and one special song on there called Afro Puffs by The Lady of Rage, which is actually one of my favorite songs on the album and, uh, you know, made me search out more music from her. But uh, yeah, man, have you ever heard this one? No, I do remember the Afro Puff song, though. (laughs) (laughs) So great. So great. I was actually, look, again, when I was tempted to kind of broaden my horizons here, there are a lot of uh, rap labels made compilations. There's millions of them. Oh, Uh, absolutely. this, This is actually one of the classics that you can get your hands on. So really good choice. Yeah, I saw it the other day, actually, in my friend's vinyl store. It was a new vinyl. So they've actually pressed it recently. So that's pretty cool. Nice. All right, so I'm up to my number three. So this is a really cool concept for a compilation. And it went along with a TV special. So if you can find it, there's, in one form or another, videos for all of these songs that are related to the source material. Hmm. So the album is called Saturday Morning Cartoons Greatest Hits. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, This came out in 1995, and much like the Angus soundtrack and the Pixies tribute. There's kind of a theme here. It is filled with some of the best alternative bands from the 90s. And the song choices are so good when paired with the artists who did them. For example, there's a version of the underdog theme song done by the Butthole Surfers. And it's one of the most powerful and like pump you up kind of songs that I've ever heard. (laughs) And like the Ramones are on here doing the Spider-Man theme. Yes. Uh, Helmet does this awesome version of the theme song for this old anime called Gigantor. It's really cool. The Violent Femmes are on here with a song, I believe, from the Jetsons or the Flintstones. Yeah, the Toadies are on here. Sublime, the Murmurs. The pinnacle of this album, though, the top track, in my opinion, is a group called Frente, which I'm not familiar with them at all, except for this comp. The song is called Open Up Your Heart and Let the Sun Shine In. It's from the Flintstones. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's They do this amazing, just beautiful, soothing song with just positive, amazing lyrics. It's so cute, adorable, sweet. I love it. And this is a great comp that you can, again, play front to back without skipping anything. Yeah, just a little trivia here, man. That uh, Flintstones song came from an episode where Fred gets knocked out and Bam Bam and Pebbles start a band. 
And that's the song that they're singing as their kids. And so he has this dream sequence and that's where that song comes from. And then the other side note that I wanted to mention, I've told you at one point, one of the Lollapaloozas, I got to see the Ramones and they actually played the Spider-Man song when I saw them. So that was awesome. (laughs) Yeah. This uh, album actually was the first one on my honorable mentions list. So I'm really glad you picked it and brought it up. Oh, cool. Nice. All right. So what's your number three? All right, my number three is actually a four-disc compilation set. It was put out by Rhino in 2004, and it's called Left of the Dial, Dispatches from the 80s Underground. It's basically four CDs with one song from each band, and it's all of these bands that were considered like underground, and it's almost like a greatest hits album of a lot of these bands. The Descendants are on there with uh, Suburban Home. The Pixies are on there with uh, Monkey Gone to Heaven. There's a Smith song, Bauhaus's Bella Lugosi is Dead's on there. The Meat Puppets song on there, uh, Lake of Fire. And uh, of course, Joy Division is on there with Love Will Tear Us Apart. So It's a really, really cool CD set from a lot of the bands from the 80s that you and I, you know, really love. So if you haven't checked this one out, I highly recommend it. That sounds really awesome. Uh, I will have to look that up. Yeah, it's very cool, man. It's funny. I'm about to (laughs) I'm about to look up a YouTube video, but I'm in my wife's my wife's YouTube was signed in. So I got to be careful, otherwise she'll get something related to my compilation and her makeup tutorials in the morning. Oh, God. (laughs) Can you imagine what my YouTube's like with kids? It's all just Minecraft videos and (laughs) zip-popping videos that my daughter's into. (laughs) Well, my number two is a four-disc compilation from Rhino Records. (laughs) It was released in 2004. Five, and it's called One Kiss Can Lead to Another, Girl Group Sounds Lost and Found. And this was a box set that I used to have physically, but I sold it somewhere along the way. I have it on my iPod, and there's a sampler of it on Spotify. The whole thing's not on Spotify, but some of it is. But anyway, this is the girl groups of the early 60s. Most of them came out of the New York City area, and then they kind of started collaborating with the Motown groups. So this is actually not so much of a greatest hits compilation. This is more deeper cuts, which sometimes can be trouble when you're looking at a compilation. You really have to be deep into the material to want the B-sides and the demos and all that stuff. Actually, there's no demos here. It's not that kind of stuff. It's not so much major hits of the girl group era. It's more something that tells a story of how these songs were made and who was in them and who produced them and who all the players were. And I've got to recommend there's a documentary. It's an old documentary. It came out in 1983, which I think is funny because then like the, the girl groups that they're talking about was only 20 years ago from there. You know what I mean? I think yeah. that's, that's so crazy to think about like how time goes. But anyway, it's called Girl Groups, The Story of a Sound, and it's on YouTube. Some of the parts are cut, I'm guessing, for copyright, but it's mostly intact, and it's only about an hour long. I actually used to have this on VHS, and it's a really good documentary. It'll make you nostalgic for the 80s and the 60s at the same time. But some of the highlights here are 
Gosh, there's so many. There's some early Carol King stuff. There's Ellie Greenwich was one of the major songwriters back then. So she had some of her solo stuff. The Shangri-Las are on here. The Marvelettes, the Ronettes, Leslie Gore, the Shirelles, like all the bands you know about. And then there's some more uh, lesser known ones like the Cinderella's, the Blossoms, the Bittersweets. And then there's other songs that have stories to them, like a really early Tony Basil single that she did. There's some other little Eva songs, like she did the Locomotion, but some people don't realize she had other songs. So some of yeah. her other songs are on here. Also the Ike Etz, which is Ike Turner's group that he put together. So mm-hmm. Yep, the album that I mentioned, the Ike and Tina album, they're doing backup on that. Yeah, it's great. There you go. So this compilation, this box set is absolutely amazing. And I'm not having a ton of seller's remorse for getting rid of it, but it came with a really cool booklet that for all the songs that are on here, however many tracks, like, you know, 100 songs or whatever, there's a little blurb about each one. And like I said, it really puts together the story of a scene that was going on before the British invasion and just feels like a more like kind of innocent time. And I really love the music of this era. Yeah. Same here, man. It sounds like an awesome album. I'm definitely going to have to check that one out for sure. Cool. All right. You're number two. All right. My number two, I told you I was picking another movie soundtrack and I'm actually going with a romantic comedy, the genre of film that I detest the most. But this one came out sort of at the right time around the grunge era. And I think a lot of people from my generation actually remember this movie. I know I've mentioned it on the show before, but 1992 soundtrack, the movie Singles. It's really, really good. It has songs that a lot of the grunge bands didn't put on any of their albums it starts off with Allison Chain's Wood, which of course was on an album, but it has songs by Chris Cornell without Soundgarden, and then there's a Soundgarden song on there as well. Paul Westerberg, who was the lead singer for The Replacements, uh, has a song on there called Waiting for Somebody that's awesome. Drown by the Smashing Pumpkins. I don't know if you've ever heard that song before, but yeah. it didn't make any albums either. But it is a fantastic pumpkin song. And then there's a few Pearl Jam songs on there as well. What's cool is those people actually make cameos in the movie, like uh, Chris Cornell makes a cameo, and I know Eddie Vedder, and I believe it's Stone Gossard, uh, yeah. have a cameo in there as well. They're part of uh, Matt Dillon's band called Citizen Dick. But the cool thing about it, and a little piece of trivia I heard on the radio several weeks ago, was that Chris Cornell was on the set of Singles, and they were going to call the fictitious band in the movie Spoon Man. And they decided not to. They went with Citizen Dick. Well, Chris Cornell liked the name so much that he wrote the song Spoon Man, which became a classic Soundgarden hit. Uh, and it was all because of that movie. And it had nothing to do with anything other than that movie, which I think is pretty cool. But uh, if you've never heard the single soundtrack, I highly, highly recommend you picking that up if you are a big fan or grew up in the grunge era. Have you heard this one, Sean? Yes. I've only seen the movie like once or twice and a very long time ago, so I don't remember it at all. But 
you know, I grew up on that kind of music. Uh, mm-hmm. The grunge era was my preteen years, basically. So, yeah, I'm familiar with that one big time. Yeah, well, the movie's not going to knock you off your feet or anything. But if you have to watch a romantic comedy with your woman, I would say put this one in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I think if anything, it would be nostalgic for me. You Absolutely. Know? I don't know if you've ever seen the documentary movie Hype about the Seattle grunge scene. No. It's really, really good. Um, just probably one of the coolest, like fastest moving documentaries. Entertaining as all get out. And if you were into the scene back then, it's absolute like essential viewing. Nice. So, all right, we're down to my number one. Now, this is a strange choice for my number one, but... I don't know, man. Mine might be weirder. <laughs> Okay, so let I hope me, it's not the same one, but there's no way in hell. There's no way in hell that this <laughs> I don't is the know, same man. As you. I don't think actually anybody is going to have heard of this, with the exception of maybe Russ Lyman. So, Russ, if you're listening, let me know if you've ever heard of this comp or this series. So, back in the punk days, you used to be able to go to shows, and if there were small record labels with you know more than two or three bands on them, they would make compilation CDs, and they would sell them for like a dollar or two. And this kind of trickled over into when you would go to Hot Topic, they would have compilation CDs like either in the CD section or right at the counter, and they would be under $10, sometimes under $5. So this happens to be... My favorite one of these ever, and there are many, like I'll name some other ones in my honorable mentions, but I grew up on these kind of compilations where these punk rock labels would just put together all their bands on them and sell the CDs for literally like two or three dollars. So this one is called Hey Brother, Can You Spare Some Ska Volume 2. It's what from, a name. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Uh, it's from Vegas Records, and it was released in 1997. So what's great about this album, and if, if you just trust me and just take a listen to it, this one is completely on Spotify. Just look it up. It's there. There are other volumes of this, and I can't speak to them because I never had them. But volume two is the one I'm talking about. So if you grew up and you kind of dabbled in ska, maybe you listen to Real Big Fish or the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones or like Early No Doubt or whatever, but you really never listened to the more underground or obscure like third wave 90s ska bands, this is a great compilation to check out. Now it does have some names you might have heard of. It has the RX Bandits back when they were known as the Pharmaceutical Bandits have a song on here. Uh, The band Longfellow has a song on here. They were pretty big back in the day. And that's actually kind of it. There's a really lot of obscure bands, probably many of which aren't around anymore, and probably many of which I go on these like trains of thought where I think about, okay, this band called Course of Ruin. I don't know what they're up to now. I wonder what the drummer of Course of Ruin is doing right this minute. Have you ever thought that kind of stuff? Like, I wonder where the people who are in this band that you know, maybe they only made one album or whatever. Like, what are they doing now? They're probably right. Sure. They probably have a real job and a family and whatever. But it's just interesting to think about because this came out again in 1997. Yeah, there's not much really that I can say about it without people like knowing who the bands are and knowing the music. But it does offer kind of a wide range of punk and ska. Like, it's called "Can You Spare Some Ska?" But it's not all ska. I would say it's about 
75% ska and there's some punk and some power pop and some swingish kind of music. There's two songs on here that have Star Wars references in them. So if you're into that kind of stuff, you can check that out. And there's also a parody song on here that is really great and funny. It's by a band called Joe and the Chicken Heads, and it's a parody of Rancid's Salvation. Uh, But they changed the lyrics to a Diet Coke commercial. So instead of saying, I want your salvation, they say, it's just for the taste of it. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) You would think that would be stupid and annoying, but I actually love that version of the song. I think it's funny. So yeah, this is actually a little bit hard to find, even to find information on it. But uh, somehow the whole thing is on Spotify, so... Again, if you want to have that nostalgic feeling for mid to late 90s punk and ska, you got to check this one out. Nice. So you're saying if I come across this album, I should pick it up, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up? (laughs) That was so good. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Little ska joke there. Yeah, that was perfect. (laughs) All right, man. My number one. This is a weird pick. A lot of people probably do not care for this band's music, but again, this is one of those tribute albums like you were talking about before. I actually wasn't a fan of this band until I heard this compilation album, and that is 1994's I Wish I Were a Carpenter. This is an album with a lot of cool bands from the era that I grew up in. Uh, Sonic Youth does a cover of Superstar. The Cranberries do Close to You, which is just a fantastic song. And one of our favorite bands, Sean, Shonen Knife, is actually on here. And they covered the song Top of the World. And it is so good. Yeah. Sean, are you a fan of the Carpenters? I kind of be interested to know this is sort of what i would think maybe a gray area for you you're either gonna love it or you're gonna hate it i wouldn't say like i love the carpenters but i absolutely respect the carpenters and you know the story of the carpenters is fascinating and tragic um have you ever watched like a youtube video of carol carpenter drumming she was a phenomenal drummer yes (laughs) and that's something that i don't think many people know And have you ever seen that weird movie that was made with Barbie dolls that was like the story of the Carpenters? No, I have not. Oh, man, I'll have to (laughs) dig it up for you. I forget what it was called, but it's one of those like banned movies. Like, I'm sure you could find it easily, but like, I think there were like copyrighted songs in it. So it's, it was for a while, it was very hard to find, but I'll have to try and find it for you. It's very interesting to watch. Nice. You had to put a link up on Twitter for that. Yeah, if I can find it or remember what it's called, I will definitely do that. But yeah, I listened to a few Carpenters albums while I was doing the the 70s research. So big fan of the style of music, the story, and the covers are really good. I have heard Sonic Youth, they not only have done covers of Carpenters songs, but they have songs that they wrote about the Carpenters. If you listen to the album Goo... There's a few songs on there that are about the Carpenters. And I think I need to correct myself because I said Carol Carpenter, and I believe it's Karen Carpenter. Yeah, Yeah. Karen. So sorry about that. Yeah, no worries, man. I think the Carpenters fall into one of those bands for me that everyone wants to lump them into this um, soft rock category, I guess, or soft pop category. And 
I don't know. There's there's something about Karen's voice that is just so haunting and tragic. It's got that sort of um, gravelly sound in it sometimes. Like uh, you ever listen to like Nico when she was like singing with the Velvet Underground? Yeah. It reminds me a lot of that, and I think it's sort of otherworldly compared to a lot of the soft pop that was going on at that time. And uh, I think there's something really, really special about it. And, you know, when bands like Sonic Youth and uh, Shonen Knife and, you know, people like that are covering it, it says a lot about that band and uh, their influence on those types of people. So that's my number one pick. And I think if you even have a vague interest in either the Carpenters or the style of music from the 90s, I'd say you got to pick it up. It's fantastic. Cool. Great choice, man. Thanks. some honorable mentions yeah let's do it man uh so as i was saying there was a bunch of uh record company samplers that kind of came out in the early 90s and 2000s and earlier than that i'm sure i'm just not familiar with them but like hopeless records had a series called hopelessly devoted to you and there was like many of those and i remember having volume one and two are really good and those are on spotify there was a label called Go-Kart Records that I was a big fan of back in the day. And they had one called Go-Kart versus the Corporate Giant, which also had many volumes. But it's funny because only volume four is on Spotify. I'm not certain that it would have made my list if I was able to hear it. But I actually ended up buying this CD on eBay so I could listen to it, but it didn't get delivered yet. I can't wait to hear it again because I haven't heard it in a long time. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I asked some of my friends if they had it and they didn't. So 
I'm going to have to report back on that because I might have a, a, not to change my list, but to have a really strong honorable mention if it's sure. as good as I remember. There was a box set called 20 Years of Discord. I know Rich are a fan of like Fugazi and Minor Threat and mm-hmm. those yep. Discord bands. They did a really good box set a while back. Kill Rockstars had a bunch of samplers too, another record label from the Northwest. There was a Schoolhouse Rock compilation that yes. was very similar to the Saturday morning cartoons, but they did the Schoolhouse Rock songs, which is a little bit before my time, but I really enjoyed that. Pavement was on there. Blind Melon is on there. Like, if I'm not mistaken, Daniel Johnston is on there. Lemonheads are on there. They did uh, Zero My Hero, uh, yeah, which that's, is fantastic. Yeah, that's a really, really yeah. good version and a really cool song. I had this one that I bought at a record store, and I can't find it online, but it was called Alterno Days, and there were many different versions of this one, but I had one that was called, um, I forget it was what it was called, but it was like, at the time, what was modern alternative music, which was the 90s, so like the Cranberries were on there and a bunch of other bands. That was a really good sampler. I wish I still had it, because it's not easy to find right now. Yeah. And then last but not least, the OC, which was that TV show from not too long ago. But the OC soundtrack volume one was something my wife had in her car when I met her and started dating her. So just by osmosis, I listened to that a lot and something that both of us really liked. So that's an honorable mention for me. Awesome, man. Yeah, a few honorable mentions from me. The Sweet Relief, the benefit for Victoria Williams compilation. Had some pretty cool songs by uh, Soul Asylum, Pearl Jam, and several other bands from that era. From what I remember, I'm not sure what Victoria Williams was suffering from, but she was a musician, and all these artists came out to support her and do a fundraiser, and they came up with this album called Sweet Relief, which is very, very good. The album Judgment Night, uh, which was a movie, they pair up a rap group with like a metal group. So you've got like Ice T playing with Slayer. It's a really, really cool album. And um, that's one I highly suggest checking out if you're into like gangster rap and metal. Several death metal groups on there. It's really cool. Sub Pop 200, uh, which is a good compilation album. Another that I picked was Death Disco, Songs from Under the Dance Floor. So basically, these are songs that came out from 1978 to 1984, around sort of the disco era, and it was more of like the underground music and, you know, a lot of the bands we listen to. It's really good, but sort of the reason I didn't put it on the list is because I had already put Left of the Dial on there, and it's a lot of similar type music. However, I would say Left of the Dial is just a touch better than Death Disco. Sugar Hill Records story, just great songs from uh, Sugar Hill Records, like Rapper's Delight from the Sugar Hill Gang and uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five is on there. One album that I listened to a ton in my senior year in college was an album called Lyricist Lounge Volume 1. And this is a time where I was getting into a lot more of the independent rap, like Most Deaf and uh, Quale. And they're both on this album, so that was a big part of the reason that I picked it up. But um, Lyricist Lounge, I believe, is a nightclub, and it's got a lot of really cool freestyle and spoken word stuff on it, and uh, takes rap back to those early street roots, which is really awesome. And then the final thing I want to mention is another soundtrack, and it is the Donnie Darko soundtrack, and that is a very, very hard soundtrack (laughs) to find, Um, because they put it out, and you can actually get the score, you know, which is just all the orchestral music, but the actual Donnie Darko soundtrack is 
really awesome. It's just got all that like 80s emo music that Sean and I love so much. And uh, Sean, I think you sound like you want to say something about that album. I mean, I just remember the music in that movie being amazing. So to yeah. have it all in one place would be a really cool mixtape kind of. Um, and actually, another one popped into my head that I think you might remember. It was called No Alternative. Do you remember yes. that one? Didn't it have like a kid's face on it and then a, like a banner across the eyes yes. or something like that? Yeah, yeah, and there was two versions. There was one with a boy and one with a girl. With a girl. It, it was yeah. actually, um, I believe it was a benefit for AIDS, for like AIDS research. One of the reasons I needed to get my hands on this when I was a kid was because it had a unreleased Nirvana song on it. And the Nirvana song was actually an unmarked track. It was like a secret song on this on this compilation but the rest of it is very good actually uh again pavement soul asylum sarah mclaughlin i remember is on it like it's really good unfortunately if you go look it up on spotify only about four of the songs are on there so i might have to track down a cd of that one if i don't have it so Speaking of Soul Asylum, did I ever tell you that I rode a roller coaster with Dave Perner one time? Yes, you did. Our <laughs> listeners have heard this story before. Okay. Good, good. I could remember, so I'll I'll save our listeners that. I'll make them dig back through the catalog to hear it, but it's pretty there awesome. There you go. Nice. All right, man. So let's break off into news. I wanted to talk about the PS5. It was just released and everything I know about it, it just comes mainly from a lot of our friends getting it. Sean, you and I both, we just don't pick up consoles at launch. That's just not who we are. We kind of sit back and wait to see if things are going to go well, what type of games are coming out on it. So yeah, I'm just kind of curious to get your take on it and um, talk about the things that we've heard about it. Everything that I've heard so far is very positive. However, I'm not seeing any games out for the PS5, so I don't really know what's going on. There's usually, you know, several launch titles, but with the PS5, I really haven't heard anything about titles. I know there's a built-in game that uh, our buddy Crabmaster was talking about saying it was his game of the year so far. So, you know, that says a lot because that guy plays a lot of stuff. But um, yeah, man, what's your take on it? I'm pretty much status quo from the last time we talked about it. One thing I learned since we last talked about it was that I have even less of a reason to run out and buy an Xbox series. And that is because Microsoft had announced that they will not have any games that are exclusive to the series for two years. Meaning everything that comes out on the series will be available for the Xbox One and or the PC. So my thought of, oh, well, the digital only one's only 300 bucks. Maybe I'll grab one, you know, no big deal. But like I have an Xbox one already and I can play my Game Pass games on there and I don't have a huge collection of Xbox one games. So when I get a series, maybe I'll get the digital one. But for now, I don't really care about graphics or frame rate. So I'm not one of those people that this is catering to. For the PS5, there are exclusive games, but like you were saying, just nothing that has caught my eye and that I absolutely have to have the system. Even my wife, who doesn't follow the games industry that closely, knows that there won't be a Kojima-produced Metal Gear Solid game on this system. So uh, that's usually the reason that gets me to buy whatever PlayStation system has come out. And that's not going to happen for this one. So it should be interesting to see what will actually make me pull the trigger on this machine. 
Yeah, same here. You know, for the PS4, it was uh, Horizon Zero Dawn was the, the big game that really made me pull the trigger on that system. Which, Which of course, I haven't even played, played it yet. yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. But, but that's the one that really piqued my interest at E3 and the one I followed for years until it was released. So, uh, yeah, that kind of got me to buy it. I, uh, you know, no regrets at all. I love my PS4. I'm having a great time with it. I don't know. I just feel like usually when a game's released, like launch titles are usually all over the place. People are talking about the launch titles, what's coming out. You know, with the Switch, we all knew what was coming with that. But for some reason, with the PS5, I just, I haven't seen anything about it. And, you know, I haven't been researching it. I haven't dug deep. But, you know, I usually hear a lot of stuff just, you know, on social media. And it's just been very quiet. Except for I know that Demon Souls came out because of Chris. That's about the only reason I know that. So Yeah. Well, we'll have them eventually. And, <laughs> you know, we'll end up playing games for them, I'm sure. Sure. Yeah, I'm sure we will. Uh, maybe you could get one at a parking lot convention in North Carolina. Uh, maybe so. Maybe at one of my outdoor swap meets like uh, I had last month, the uh, first annual Geekapalooza, or biannual, I should say. It was pretty successful, so um, we're going to try to do it again in the spring. The store owner that sponsored it and got us the parking lot said, hey, why don't we do it three times a year? And I was like, yeah, no, no. <laughs> No, I think it's good to have it twice a year. I think that's plenty for people. I think people kind of get worn out and, you know, less interested if you have it too many times. I think the sort of the buildup and uh, the planning of it just works better in that regard and, you know, keeping interest high. Uh, for the first event, we had a lot of vendors. Uh, I had 30-something vendors, had a decent crowd. It wasn't anything stellar and, you know... I, kind of planned this thing within a month. So it was really hard to spread the word. But, uh, you know, we had a lot of word of mouth. A lot of local businesses were talking about it. So I, I think it went as well as to be expected for a first year. I made over 500 bucks, so I was happy. And, uh, you know, was able to sell a lot of my games, including all of my Mario Party games for my GameCube so that I could put that money into some higher priced titles that I've been searching for and have wanted for my collection for a long time. So that was a, a very, very nice trade-off. And uh, I would say it's a very successful event. That is great to hear, man. Thank you for the report back. I am very happy for you and for the people who were there. That's awesome. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, Although I made over $500, I pretty much spent some of that <laughs> show <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, did some swapping. I had a Ninja Turtles TV that I was able to swap out. And uh, I'll talk about that a little bit in my pickups, which we're going to go into right now. Amazing. Yeah, let's do it. So I'll go first because I don't have too many pickups. I did download a digital game on the Switch eShop. And I want to shout out Bikman2K for recommending Ludomania because I was tweeting that, uh, hey, I'm not seeing too many like games under 10 cents on the eShop the last couple of weeks. What's going on? And he was saying he thinks they're getting ready for like a Black Friday, Cyber Monday kind of thing and that there uh -huh. will be better sales at that point. Uh, but he said, hey, man, you should get Ludomania. It's like a board game type of game, but it's really fun. So. It was four cents, and I downloaded it. I haven't had a chance to play it yet, but that's my one game pickup. You know, with all these like little four cent game pickups, I've thought about starting like your own little segment of the show called 
Hit or hit. (laughs) (laughs) Where you just review your very cheap game and you give us feedback on it. That's a good one. And foreshadowing, I will give you some of that action when we get to what are you playing and when I plug my latest article on the blog on the site. So there will be more of that in this episode for sure. And my other big pickup, uh, this is kind of funny. I feel like we're talking about this like month after month, but I got another 55-inch TV. Wow. So, you know, I had bought the TCL that you had recommended and Adam recommended to me. Very happy with it. I have it in my living room. And then in the room that I'm in now, the office room where, I mean, you know it, you were here when we recorded, I had like a 40-inch scepter tv which is a cheapo chinese brand that i bought the tv for like a hundred dollars and it did the job it was fine to do my gaming on but then my friend frank who was on the show the head writer of darksiders genesis he texted me and he was like hey man do you want that tv that was in my living room because remember i had gone to his house to play the game before it was out which was really cool so i had scene he had this 55 inch sony bravia tv in his living room and he was like do you want this tv it's free i got a new one and i just want to get rid of it and i was like but i want to be honest i don't need it but i might want it you know what i mean <laughs> and he was like no please just take it like that's the situation <laughs> he was in so he said no worries uh just think about it and then he texted me like two days later he's like so do you want this tv <laughs> So it's like, yes, I'll take the TV. But it may seem like a no-brainer, but I didn't realize that going from a 42-inch or whatever it is to a 55-inch TV would be such a huge difference. But I think it's because it's a very small room, and I'm literally sitting like two feet away from the screen. So it makes a huge difference, and it has a beautiful display, great for gaming, and it's just an awesome TV and to get it for free was a great gift from a great friend. And it's funny because I took the 40 inch TV and I brought it to work to see if anybody would want to take it. And Corey took it, which is very funny because Corey now has two of my old TVs in his house (laughs) because when I bought the TCL, I gave him the scepter that was in my living room that had the imperfection in the screen. So he looked at it. He didn't mind the imperfection and, that's his main TV, and now he has my smaller scepter as well. So TV's moving all around and... Uh, <laughs> Shifting. <laughs> yeah. And what, another thing that's great about this Bravia is that it has a ton of inputs. So I actually hooked all my systems back up to it, and I have a spare HDMI and a couple spare AV inputs. So I can actually hook up some systems that might be in storage right now. So that is cool to consider. Nice, man. Yep. So that's it for my pickups. What about you? All right. So I'll start off my pickups with um, one that I actually got at the swap meet. A few nights before the swap meet, some of the vendors on some of the local sites were like, hey, throw up some pictures of some stuff you're bringing. And of course, I threw up my Ninja Turtle TV and several of my games and stuff like that. And um, I saw another guy, he threw up one of the Game Boy Colors, the Pokemon edition, the yellow one. And, you know, I've been collecting all the North American release Game Boys, the Play It Louds, the colors and the pockets. And I didn't have this one. So I was like, oh, okay, well, what do you want for it? And he's like, 
40 bucks and dude this thing is super super nice and i thought that was a screaming deal so i ended up picking that up i was in another group and picked up an ice blue game boy pocket from a facebook group i traded my ninja turtle tv for sky gunner which is an expensive atlas game Mm -hmm. on the ps2 and so i was really happy to add that to the collection wasn't ever expecting to come across that but uh yeah, man, uh, $10 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle TV from uh, the Goodwill finally paid off after all those years. <laughs> and yeah. then um, I picked up a few Japanese Sega Saturn games from our good buddy Disposed Hero. He listed these on RF Generation, and um, I picked up a game called Necronomicon, which is actually a really cool pinball game. My buddy... Cameron, who used to live here in town, and I used to hang out with all the time. He brought it over one night, and we played some of it, and uh, Stephen had it for sale at a great price, of course. So I picked that up. And then I also picked up Christmas Nights, which is basically a Christmas-themed Nights into Dreams. It's something I've really always wanted and um, thought at one point maybe we could do a playthrough of it during December, but I think that's a little bit uh, of an ask to get people to play a Japanese Sega Saturn game. With some of the money that I earned from the swap meet, I picked up a copy of Golf Story on the Switch. This is a game that has been really, really tough to find, but uh, again, a guy in a Facebook group that I'm a member of had a copy of it sealed and sold it to me for an unbelievable price, so I picked that up. Picked up a copy of Arms. My uh, local gaming store was doing buy one, get one half off. I had to pick up a birthday present for my neighbor. So I was like, hey, I'll take that half off Arms because that game's still going for about 50 bucks, which is kind of crazy. My uh, kids are really loving playing it, though, having a good time with it with their friends. At that same sale, I also picked up Kirby's Dreamland for the Wii. Uh, I went out of town on a guy's trip and stopped at a really, really awesome game store in Wilmington, North Carolina, near the beach, which I always stop in. They always have great prices, and the owner's so cool. I picked up Newtopia for the TurboGrafx-16 for a really nice price. And then some of the PS1 games that I have grabbed. As you know, I've just been doing a lot of PS1 collecting lately. Uh, At the swap meet, I picked up Lemmings and Oh No More Lemmings, which is on the PS1. Uh, It's a compilation. I love the Lemmings game. They're just fun puzzle games. They're quirky and they're silly. Another game that I picked up, Sean, you're going to think I'm nuts, but I think it's a game that you would really love, is Chicken Run for the PS1. You remember that movie? Yeah, yeah. This is sort of like a Metal Gear Solid game, where it's a stealth game and you're trying to escape the chicken coop. It's one that not a lot of people know about. I'm not going to call it a hidden gem, but uh, if you're definitely into the Metal Gear sort of tactical games, I would say this would be one to pick up. I grabbed a copy of Blasto. It's not the greatest game, but it's funny, and the main character on it is voiced by the late Phil Hartman, who is my favorite all-time comedian and Saturday Night Live actor. So, you know, for a few bucks, it was kind of a no-brainer for me to add that to my collection. I picked up a game called Steel Harbringer, which is is sort of like an over-the-top action shooter, but has a lot of quirky and silly FMV stuff in it. It's one I would say you definitely want to watch a video on. It's a really cool game. And then I picked up a copy of Nanotech Warrior, which is sort of like an F-Zero game, but you're driving this vehicle on this pipe. 
So you're actually doing some shooting and you're doing some dodging of some obstacles that are actually on this pipe. It's pretty cool. I uh, picked up Lethal Enforcers 1 and 2, the gun game. Eggs of Steel, Speed Punks, a racing game. Croc 2, Disruptor. Philosoma, which is a shmup. I picked up the original Worms, and then my biggest pickup on the PS1 was the heavy hitter Elemental Gear Bolt, which I also purchased with money that I earned at the swap meet. And then my final pickup of the month was the game that I said that if I make enough money at this swap meet, I am 100% grabbing this game. It's one of the heavier hitting titles on the Super Nintendo, and that is Pocky and Rocky 2. Uh, I already had the first game, and I wanted to get the second game. I actually played a little bit of it to try it out and test it and really enjoyed it. That's all of my pickups, and uh, that'll put us now into games played. And once again, I'm going first, Sean. I did play a little bit of that Pocky and Rocky, like I said. <laughs> it's an over-the-top, sort of a mobile shmup where you're just this kid and you're throwing these playing cards and uh, you're killing stuff. But the cool thing about this is that you have a little person that follows you. And in Pocky and Rocky 2, you can actually swap that person out. And it's a really, really good game. I'm not sure it's worth the price it commands. And I don't know that any game is worth that price, honestly. But I'm really happy to have it in the collection, and um, it's really fun. And then finally, uh, of course, I've been playing Battle Cats more and more. I'm kind of weaning off of it. (laughs) It's gotten to a point where it's sort of plateaued a little bit once again. It's getting a little boring. I'm trying to get the ball rolling, but um, I'm starting to lose a bit of interest on that game. So, uh, yeah, that's it for me, Sean. What have you been playing? Well, speaking of waning off of a game, I actually finally, finally beat Xenoblade Chronicles on the 3DS. Nice. I talked about this game a lot, so I'll keep it brief, but it was really good. I just wish that I had been able to play it on the Wii as I originally intended or to have waited to play it on the Switch because I bought it anyway on the Switch, even though I didn't need it. And I said I wasn't going to buy it, but I ended up buying it, so... Uh, It's a great game, amazing game if you like massive scale RPGs. I've been playing it since last summer, not summer of 2020, but I think I started it in June of 2019. The final game clock was only 80 hours when I completed the game. So I played it, I guess, on and off throughout that time period, but definitely a, a great game. Great characters, love the combat system. If anybody's wondering, my main party was Melia, Shulk, and Ricky for 99% of the entire game, and I mained as Melia because her combat is so fun, plus she's the best waifu. Um, (laughs) So yeah, Xenoblade Chronicles. Next, I did some VR a couple weeks ago because Daylight Savings Time, so it gets dark early now so that's a good opportunity to play some vr Uh, depending on your setup in your house it senses the headset better when there's no natural light blasting through the windows so anyway i finished this game that i had been playing last season which was called bound i got stuck on a part and i gave it up but when i put the vr headset back on i said let me jump back into that bound game and see if i can finish it And sure enough, I did. It's a pretty neat game. 
it's in the vein of like a journey or an abzu, just one of those relaxing, like it's not a walking simulator. There's jumping and platforming and stuff, but it's not like super challenging. It's more about the journey, so to speak. And in VR, it's very cool. And then one other VR game I played. Now, I marked this as just beat it, and I marked it as complete in the 2020 games played thread on RF Generation. The game is Trackmania Turbo, and it has a VR mode. It's like a VR career mode, but it doesn't give you an ending or anything when you beat it. So I'm still counting it as a beat it because I got a gold medal on every single track of the VR career mode. So as far as I'm concerned, I beat the VR career mode on Trackmania Turbo. Next, I played this really cool game that you really should check out, Rich. It's called Costume Quest. I'm sure you're familiar with it. I have heard about that, yeah. Yeah, so actually, Steven Disposed Hero recently put up a review of Costume Quest 2 on RF Generation, and that made me remember, hey, man, I've always wanted to play that series. So I went on my PS3 and fired up Costume Quest. It is great, man. I know you would adore this game as much as I did. It's just a simple turn-based RPG, but it's based on kids trying to trick-or-treat and they use their costumes as uh, basically your character class is whatever costume you are and you have to get parts of the costume throughout the game world. One of the best parts of the game is that it's nice and short, doesn't overstay its welcome. It's like the perfect length, like six or seven hours, which for a game that's an RPG, quote-unquote, it's just perfect for that. There is a DLC that I have called Grubbins on Ice. The Grubbins are like the enemies of the game. So I started it, but then I was like, you know what? I've had my fill of this game. I don't want to wear myself out on it. So I'm going to go back to Grubbins on Ice eventually, and then I'm going to play Costume Quest 2 at some point. But yeah, you have to check this out. Check it out with the kids. It's very family friendly. I think you and your kids would like it a lot. Awesome. Next game I played was called Paratopic. It is on the Switch, and this is where I'm going to plug Is It a Shit or a Hit, uh, my new series. (laughs) Um, And also plug my article on the site. So I wrote an article. It was actually called, and this is way too wordy and not catchy at all, but I said... Oh, I love it. Oh, okay. I said the Nintendo eShop is a haystack. Here are some needles. So amongst the games I reviewed, one of them was Paratopic. This is a weird experimental-ish. You could say on the surface of it, it's a walking simulator, but it's not like that. It's like you do one thing and then it flashes you to something else. Then you drive a car for a couple of seconds. Then you shoot somebody. Then you watch a VHS tape. It's very weird and obscure. It's almost horror movie-esque, X-Files-ish. They tell you at the beginning it has no save function and it's designed to be played in one sitting. So it'll take you about 45 minutes to an hour. You know, you could sleep mode the game and you don't have to play it in that time, I think. I don't know if they did something to disable sleep mode, but I'm pretty sure. I don't know if you can do that. But anyway, I played it in a single sitting and I think you should do that if you can. And it's designed for multiple playthroughs because they give you like these weird made up trophies at the end of the game and I only got like half of them so and plus if you play the game differently you might kind of fill in the blanks of the very obscure story that's in the game and I think I have some parts of it figured out and I think it's pretty cool there's a I guess you could say a plot twist that I thought was really cool 
Uh, but yeah, Pyrotopic. I got this on the eShop for less than 10 cents at one point. It's just been sitting on my SD card and I saw it was getting a lot of buzz around the internet. People were starting to discover how neat it was. So I gave it a shot and I really liked it. Okay. So hit, not hit. Definitely. Definitely a hit. And then what I'm playing currently is Gravity Rush 2 on the PlayStation 4, which I've just had on the shelf forever. I love the first Gravity Rush so much. And I just had it in my head like I played Gravity Rush twice on the Vita and I should play the Gravity Rush remastered on PS4 before I play Gravity Rush 2. And then, you know what happens? I never like wanted to play Gravity Rush. I would always wanted to play something else. So I said, screw it. I'm just going to jump right into Gravity Rush 2. I'm glad I did. It's been very enjoyable so far. They definitely went for like a bigger game in scale. There's like these side missions that you can choose to go on that are just like an hour and a half to two hours, like these long play sessions of what is a side mission. So you might just want to <laughs> sit down and pick one and that's your play session for the night. And then also I'm playing Assassin's Creed 3 Liberation on the Vita. I like the game. I've never played an Assassin's Creed game, and I just chose this one because it was on the Vita. I know there are better ways to play this game now. There's an HD remaster, remake, or whatever you want to call it that is available on the Switch and other platforms. But I just wanted to play a Vita game because I've been playing Xenoblade Chronicles on the 3DS for two years, and I wanted to play a Vita game. So I just decided to jump in to Assassin's Creed 3 Liberation. So yeah, I'm currently playing two third-person action-adventure games on Sony platforms, and life is good.
All right, so let's get into our main topic of discussion. This month, the game is Fatal Frame 2, Crimson Butterfly. So since this is a photography-based game, the question I conceived was, do you have physical photos on display in your home? If so, what are your favorites? So we got a few responses on Twitter. Kelsey, also known as Crabmaster, said... I have some body image issues and hate any photo of myself. Very few photos of me around my home. We have one, though, with me and my daughter where she looks so genuinely happy I can't help but love it. It's one of the only pictures of myself I can stand to look at. Well, Kelsey, you're a handsome man, but I am fully empathetic with body image issues, so don't worry about it. You're a good guy and a good dad. So let's move on to Chris. Dude, I've seen Kelsey. That kid is jacked. He's tall and jacked. (laughs) It has metal hair. Like, how cool is that? Yeah, dude. Don't worry about that stuff. You're an awesome dude. Yep. All right. So let's move to his co-host, one of his co-hosts on the Collector Cast, Chris. He says, of course, my three daughters do a picture each year for Father's Day holding each letter of the word dad. It's amazing to see the change from year to year. I thought that was a really cool one. Next, we have Thomas the Pocky X. He says, looks around room, sees nothing but anime prints. No. <laughs> so... But even before you mention his name, you start chuckling. So, uh, yeah, we know where that's going to go. Exactly. Um, The last one on Twitter we got from Adam, uh, Bickman2K. He says, my wife has a lot of pictures up. One of my favorites is of my youngest son and his cousin when they were probably one or two. They're in a pumpkin patch but are dressed and making faces like old men. (laughs) So that's a good one. I like the family theme that we're getting from our people here. It's very heartwarming. So let's move over to Instagram. Uh, You can follow me. It's at Sean Gray, S-H-A-W-N-G-R-A-Y. And you will see a bunch of other weird stuff and things that are part of my life that I don't usually discuss on the podcast. But I also asked a question there because there's different people following me. So my friend Sarah from back in New Jersey, she says, I have some hanging in each room of my house and some on the fridge too. Photos of my kids, our adventures, some portraits of flowers I took. And then she added, wait, doesn't everyone? And I said, no, we have one guy who only has anime prints in his house. Uh, but yeah, thank you, Sarah, for the answer. I love you. I miss you. And God bless you and your family. And the last one I have is from Corey via text message. He says, I have one framed photo hanging in my living room. It is a photo of my fiance's parents in their 30s. So it was back in the 1980s. It is a really cool, nice photo in black and white. So... Those are the answers from the community, and I'll give you mine. This question was not only inspired by the game, but it's inspired by the fact that I don't have nearly enough photos in my house. Uh, I think it's that like moving syndrome. You feel like if you unpack them, you're just going to move and have to put them back away kind of thing, notwithstanding the fact that we've been in this house for almost five years. But I do have one photo on my mantle. 
that is all of my childhood friends almost together in one place. It was at a fireman's field. It was kind of a, not a farmer's market, but they had like kind of a small festival. I don't, there's a word for it. These things they do in small towns where they have some bands play, they have some vendors and street party, something like that, or a harvest festival. Maybe it was that. I can't remember, but it was at Fireman's Field in Denville, late 90s or early 2000s. All of our bands played it at this thing. So all my friends were there. And what's really funny is the only two people who should be in the picture who aren't in the picture are Frank and his brother, Lewis, because that day something was wrong with Lewis's eye and Frank had to take him to like a CVS or something to get eye drops and an eye patch because his eye, Lewis's eye was like just majorly messed up. So when the photo was taken, the two of them were not there. So that's the one thing that was missing. But yeah, a lot of friends in that picture, people I grew up with, people I'm still friends with, people I'm not so much friends with anymore, people who are no longer with us. It's just one of those great all-time group photos. I also have in my bedroom on our dresser is a picture from back in the days of Photo Bucket before it turned into a complete scam site. They used to do, you could order prints in different configurations and they did all the normal stuff like calendars and mouse pads and stuff. But they did these nice like, and you can get them in all different sizes, like your photo printed on a canvas square kind of. So I have this little one, it's like, it might be a six by six square and it's a picture of me and my wife the first time we were in Austin together. And I know it's, it's funny, but we were on the bridge of route 35 going over the Colorado river and we took a selfie and it was just a really nice picture. And it's just our faces. It's like an extreme close up of just our faces. It reminds me of this time that we were on this new adventure of, you know, trying to move to Austin. And then I got one more. I know I'm kind of going on. I'm giving you three here, but um, you did say pictures. That's true. I said, what are some of your favorites? So here's the last one. It's actually my wife's car, which used to be my car. It's a Polaroid of my wife and I at the first company Christmas party from a company I worked at in New Jersey when I married my wife. It was a really nice picture when I got it, but it's been in my car for like 12 years and it's all washed out in the sun and it's just really worn out all after all these years but you can still tell what it is and it still holds like you know very nice memories for me of that night and was connected to that job I really liked all the people there and uh you know both of us looked very nice so that's one of my favorite photos as well but I got to get more hung up I have a lot of really cool pictures and most of them are already framed they're just in boxes so I also have some artwork hung up in my house, but that's not what the question was. So I'm going to stop there and pass it off to you. Well, first of all, I just want to know what's up with all this sentimental bullshit. I mean, <laughs> do you guys not have any pictures that you have up just to f with your in-laws? I certainly do. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's funny. Tell me more. <laughs> so one of my favorite pictures, I've been going on this guy's trip. This was um, our 14th year. And um, the first year, it was my buddy's bachelor party. And, um, you know, we hadn't planned to do a guy's trip every year, but we have so much fun with each other at this bachelor party. We were like, why don't we do this every year, you know, just to get away? And so we have been. We've been doing it for 14 years now. But we took a picture at that party. And uh, you've seen the uh, painting, The Last Supper. Yeah. So my buddy Chris <laughs> is 
Jesus because he's the one that got married and the rest of us are like around him. We like studied the photo. We got the poses down and there's like maker's mark on the table and beef jerky. And I've got like a PlayStation controller in my hand. And uh, yeah, it's really a really awesome photo. The other one that we have, one of the guys that was in that Last Supper photo who's become a good friend, um, he's an artist. And his big thing is he does uh, a lot of stuff with masks. So he was over at my house the summer that my wife was pregnant with my second kid. And he just has this box of masks. And um, in this photo, it's a family photo. And I've got on a Frankenstein mask. My daughter, who is like three or four years old at the time, has on her Little Mermaid one-piece bathing suit with floaties on, wearing a, a luchador mask. And then my wife, who's pregnant at the time, whose belly's sticking out, is also wearing another luchador mask. And he took this picture, and it's awesome. And it's uh, it's up on the fridge. When we have parties and stuff with people who I've just kind of recently met, I like to kind of watch them like go get a beer out of the fridge and just look at their eyes like when they see this photo and I can just tell, like, if they're weirded out, they're probably not going to be a good friend of mine. But if they chuckle, then that's a good sign, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's my um, my line of demarcation for uh, where I start my friendships based on the photo in my house. So, yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's great. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of representative of uh, who my wife and I are. We just like to joke around and just be big kids, you know? And so, uh Yeah. Having some fun stuff around the house like that, it's just something that uh, we always have to have. Very cool. All right. Well, let's get into Fatal Frame 2. Our participants this month were you and I, of course, Dougley007, Disposed Hero, Mr. Stubbs, and Engineer Mike. So, Rich, you want to go into some of the nuts and bolts about the development of this game? Absolutely. So, this game was originally titled Project Zero in Japan and Europe. It is a Japanese survival horror game, and when I say Japanese, I mean it is very Japanese and full of that culture, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah. It was developed and published by Tecmo and released in November 2003 for the PS2. A director's cut was later released on the Xbox, and also a remake was released overseas on the Wii titled Project Zero Two Wii Edition which was immediately developed after the release of the first title, since many gamers were frightened and refused to finish the original. Its story is similar to, but it's independent from the first game in the series. Additional games in the series include Fatal Frame 3, The Tormented, which was released in 2005 on the PS2, and it is actually a direct sequel of Fatal Frame 2, unlike the original game to the second. Fatal Frame Mask of the Lunar Eclipse was released in 2008 for the Wii, and that was a Japan-only release. Fatal Frame Maiden of Black Water was released in 2014 on the Wii U in Japan, and also released in 2015 in Europe, Australia, and North America. However, the North American version is only available in the eShop. And then there was also a spinoff that was released that I know Sean has played called Spirit Camera, which was released in 2012 on the 3DS. Yes. So what is your history, if any, with this series, Rich? 
Well, the only history that I have with this series is that I've been bugging the piss out of you for years and years <laughs> to play a Fatal Frame game in October. You know, these are games that I've collected because I've always heard that they were fun games. They're interesting. I knew how the mechanics worked in the game, and I knew that they were horror games. And so that always interested me, and it's something that I always wanted to play, but really wanted to do that as a group. But I've never played any of these games, although I do own all of the North American releases of these games. Yeah, so I have a similar background with the series. I got into it more for the collector aspect of the games. Mm -hmm. Survival horror titles on the PS2 tend to hold their value, if not gain in value. Kuon, my God. Kuon, Rule of Rose, Haunting Ground. There's many examples. Fatal Frame, not quite there yet, but it's definitely part of my library because of that. And interestingly enough, I thought I had this game on the PlayStation 2, but it turns <laughs> out I have the first two games on the original Xbox and I have the third game on the PS2. So that was an interesting discovery that I made in my collection. Sometimes we talk about how well do you know your collection and that was one that <laughs> slipped by me. Yeah. Like you said, I have played Spirit Camera, and to this point, that is the only Fatal Frame game that I had played. And even though most people hate that game, I quite enjoyed it. So I did have a little bit of a background as to the mechanics of the Camera Obscura coming into this one. So with all that out of the way, Rich, why don't we roll into the story? Story in 60 Seconds. The setting, a forest in Minakami, Japan, where twin sisters, Mio and Mayu, are spending the afternoon in the forest on a day like any other. That is, until a crimson butterfly catches Mayu's eye, and both girls subsequently give chase. Before long, they stumble upon a small parish known in local folklore as the Lost Village, a once prominent community that is rumored to have suddenly vanished as a result of a nefarious ritual known as the Crimson Sacrifice. It's not long before the girls realize that they are not alone and that the village is haunted by malevolent spirits enshrouded in a dark past. Will you and your sister solve the mystery veiled within these village walls and make it out alive? Or will you become involuntary participants of the Crimson Ritual? Nice, very good summation of the story. I love it. So... This is a survival horror game where you mainly play as Mio and you have to kind of look after Mayu where she kind of runs off and that's the start of the game. So the initial setup of the story is very simple, but as you go through the story, there's a lot of lore and background as you slowly discover what is really going on in this cursed village. Right, Rich? Yeah, I think the game does a very nice job of, you know, just sort of throwing you out into the middle of the story without any knowledge. And you sort of get bits and pieces as you move along. And I think that it's a really nice incline in story building and that you just get pieces and pieces until you come to that final realization and that sort of denouement and then start coming down in the story. So I don't know about you, Sean, but I, I think it's very, very well done. And I think the story is a very strong part of this game. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was Stubbs who commented on it, or maybe uh, one of the walkthroughs I was reading was like, 
Mayu seems to be getting a little crazier at this point. So just pay attention to what she's saying. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's very subtle and it is really, again, well delivered and just kind of slowly ratchets up as you go through the chapters. And we should mention the game is divided into Correct me if I'm wrong. It's nine chapters if you play the standard difficulty, and then there's a zero chapter, which would be a total of 10 chapters if you play the, I believe it's called Nightmare Difficulty. That's correct. With alternate endings, of course, uh, for this game, which uh, we'll get into later on in the show. Yes, sir. But yeah, I mean, you know, at the beginning, you get this sense that it does have something to do with these girls being twins. You get these references to twins throughout the game. Yeah, I mean, I think the story is just fantastic and just a great piece of storytelling. As far as the gameplay is concerned, I did have a few issues with the gameplay, which we'll talk about in a minute, but the story was probably the thing that really drove me to finish this game because, you know, I had to see how it ended. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Again, we'll get into frustrations, just like you said, with the gameplay, but other than the fact that this was a playthrough game and I like to try to finish them, the story did keep me going and trying to kind of figure out what was going on. I mean, you figure out maybe halfway through the game what is going on and mm-hmm. then you want to see the consequences of it is more what is driving you. Well, why don't we get into one of the aspects of the gameplay because it kind of dovetails with the story. Is something that we talk about a lot and it's really a hit or miss gameplay aspect for me a lot and that's collectibles that are journal styles or audio logs or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have all those in here. You have these crystals which you can play in your radio that give context to uh, whatever house you're in in the village. It's super eerie, too. Oh, Oh, my gosh. Very creepy. And then there are various different types of journals and written material that you can pick up. And I will say it's kind of a paradoxical because usually I don't care too much for this kind of stuff. But in this game, I read every single one. And yet I don't feel like I got tons of clarity from them. Like, I think they were meant to be kind of obscure and to kind of make you keep you guessing a little bit, but they definitely help to add context to the story as you're piecing together this village's past and what they've done and what the ritual is. And to add to that in the game, there's also these projectors that you can find film reels for, and you can put those inside the projectors and watch the films too. There's no sound in the films, but, you know, you can look at the walls and sort of get depictions of what's been going on in this village. And you find more and more of those throughout the game. And it's very interesting to watch those as well. I don't know if you um, took the time to watch all of them, but yeah, it's um, just a great piece of the game. I love the journaling, like you said. A lot of it's very vague, but I think that was the intent. Uh, You're getting different perspectives from different houses, from different villagers in the game. Yeah, the the game does a really nice job of framing the story through all of these items. You said you read a lot of the journals. Well, in a lot of games, you'll pick up a journal or something, and it'll just go into your inventory, and you're responsible for reading it if you want to. But what I like about this game is when you pick up a journal, you're forced to go through it. Now, whether you read it or not is, you know, I guess up to you. But in picking it up and it for it to immediately come up on the screen, 
it actually makes you want to read it. And I think that is something that a lot of games are missing these days. There's all these collectibles and stuff you can get, but then you have to go through your inventory, seek them out, and read them. And nobody wants to take the time to do that. So I think this was very well integrated into the game. Agree completely. All right, so that's what we'll say about the story for now. Like uh, I said earlier, Sean and I will get into our final thoughts on the game and talk a lot more about the story and the multiple endings that go along with it. So let's go ahead and move into gameplay, which is something we mentioned a few moments ago. This is a survival horror game. In the vein of such games as Resident Evil, Kuan, Rule of Rose, and Haunting Grounds, And what it does have somewhat in common with the Resident Evil games are the controls. However, they're not tank controls, but they are very, very similar. Sean, I'm kind of curious how you felt about the controls. Yeah, I think the controls are a step up from actual tank controls, which it's something we talked on the show about, but it was actually a long time ago. There was a really great segment And I can't remember which game we were playing, but Steven actually explained tank control very well. Actual tank controls are when the character is stationary and can pivot on a 360-degree axis and then moves forward and backwards, much like a tank would. With Fatal Frame 2, they are more true 3D controls, in my estimation. You can turn as you're walking. You can actually turn around. Totally unrelated to the controls of moving the character. Did you know you could click the right stick when you were in character mode and it would turn you around 180 degrees? I had no idea, no. Yeah, I discovered that by accident like towards the end of my gameplay. But anyway, that's a side note to what I'm actually talking about, which is the character movement. So yeah, not exactly tank controls. They're more traditional 3D controls. But they do have that kind of linear movement in a way that would remind you of tank controls if that makes sense. Absolutely. And they're not as frustrating as tank controls, which is great. You can be moving down and holding down on the controller. And then when the camera refocuses in a different direction, if you're holding down, you're still going to keep going forward, which is really cool. They do a good job of adjusting so that you're not going from one side of the screen and immediately tracking back into the screen. I didn't have any problems with that. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that is more traditional to like a Resident Evil, that those fixed camera angles, which in this game, they are mixed with some moving cameras, which is great. So it's not fully 100% fixed camera angles, but you're absolutely right that when you do, there is that kind of screen transition trick that If you're moving in the same direction, you can continue pressing the thumbstick in the direction that you're moving. But as soon as you let go of it, you're going to change which way you want to press based on which way she's facing. So very interesting. Some people find it to be challenging or annoying, but it sounds like you actually got the hang of it pretty quickly. And I as well. So I'm glad you brought that up. No, I I didn't feel like it was annoying at all. I thought it was perfect. I thought it was just a great way to do a game that was like this. I mean, that has to be a challenge when you're creating a game of this magnitude. It's like a piece of art because when you move into a different piece of the screen, your camera angles change. It can be overhead. It can be from behind. It could be forward facing you. The cameras can be at an angle. It's really cool. And in the sense of being a survival horror game, 
you don't know what's around each corner, so it really helps build the mood and the intensity of the game, which I think for a game like this, it's perfect. Awesome. All right, so along with the control, something else very different about this game as compared to a lot is the combat. This game has a very, very special combat feature and that instead of normal weapons that you would use in a lot of survival horror games, you have this object known as the Camera Obscura, which is a camera where you can look through the lens and actually take pictures of these evil spirits and do damage to them. Now, with this type of camera, a lot of your hits depend on framing the picture in the right way and also the proximity of the enemy to you. The closer they are, the more damage a lot of times that you can do to that character and the shorter the fight will be and you can save on resources. So I like the combat in this game. I thought it was interesting. It was neat. It's not as action-packed as a lot of other games are. It's a lot of rinse and repeat, but I found it interesting enough to be effective and enjoyable. So when I tweeted that I finished this game, I described it as a love-hate relationship, which was about 80% love and 20% hate. And I would say the exact same thing about the combat system in Microcosm. I love the concept of it, and a lot of times I was having a ball with it. The feedback that you get when you nail a perfect shot is really great. The sound effects are very bang right in your face when you do the right thing. So it's very good positive feedback on the audio side. Uh, and it can just be super satisfying. But it also has its frustrations, right? So there's combat encounters where as the meter fills up, you're waiting it for it to turn red so you can get that fatal frame. And you'll see the ghost like move towards you and it'll almost like turn red for an instant and then disappear. It'll deplete as not red. There were some instances where I couldn't tell if that was actually supposed to happen or if it was something that like I wasn't facing the right angle. That happened to me a lot and it started to get a little bit frustrating. Yeah, I agree. There were parts of the game where it would hit that red area and then after it passed through that red area, if you didn't hit it at the exact time, even if you clicked your camera, you would still miss. Yeah. In a lot of instances, you would get nothing. Like it would go from yeah. red to you don't even have the meter, which means you can't do any damage with your photo. And yeah. then you waste a picture of whatever film you're using and you have to wait for it to reload. There's a reload time that are different for each type of film. It's very frustrating when you lose your meter altogether and just waste a shot. That's even worse than if you went back into the yellow because then you still do a little bit of damage. You just don't get the fatal frame. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the different grades of film that you can acquire in this game. I think there's about four or five different types. One is called the Zero Film, which is like the most powerful. And I think the weakest one is like the 14 or the 17. Uh, seven is the weakest. So seven, uh, okay, yeah. we should say you have unlimited seven film, but it does almost no damage and it takes a very long reload. So that's like your absolute last resort. Although I did use it a lot. 
And it's also a good one to take pictures of the non-enemy spirits and the gates. So there's a lot of like closed gates and doors that you have to open by taking pictures of them and they'll lead you to a different area where you have to take a picture and blah, blah, blah. But non-combat situations, I always used number seven because it was unlimited and I wasn't wasting the better stuff that I could be using for fights. Yeah, and you mentioned the photographs that you can take of some of the more benevolent spirits and things like that. Those are collectibles in the game. I'm not exactly sure what those unlock, but they are rather hard to obtain sometimes. Some of them are on a very, very quick timer and kind of jump out at you from nowhere. So in order to collect all these photos, you would definitely have had to play the game before and know the tendencies of the game. I think that... In the updated version, there's even more photos that you can obtain. Yeah, now that you mention it, I should say I played the original Xbox version, which is the director's cut, but I, to be honest, I don't know what makes it different from the PlayStation 2 version, if that's one of the things that does make sense. I know there's like costumes for the twins that you can get in that version of the game, so I don't know if they're on the PlayStation 2 as well, but um, I played the Xbox. I'm assuming you played the PS2. I did. I also played through the first house on the Wii version, but it was very dark on my TV and I didn't feel like playing the game all over again. I just wanted to kind of experience what the controls were like. So I played a little bit of that version. Cool. Well, since we're talking about film, we should probably move into talking a little bit about resource management in this game. (laughs) Yeah. Not very challenging, is it? (laughs) Not existent, actually. (laughs) And you mentioned that you do have unlimited number seven film, so you really don't have to manage resources that well. And I got to say, also, man, as far as the items are concerned, the health items are super plentiful in this game. I mean, I know I was playing it on easy, and I think you were as well, so maybe that had something to do with it. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not really keen on what the differences are as far as, uh, you know, resource management and health items in the more difficult games. But I would say that compared to something like a Resident Evil game where you're constantly worried about running out of ammunition, that's not a worry that you have in this game. And that's sort of relieving in a way. I always hated that aspect of Resident Evil games. Yeah, we went over this. This was one of the reasons I wanted to play this game. It was <laughs> it was a bit much, though, <laughs> I got to say. By the time I was at the end of the game, I had 23 medicinal herbs, and I had, I think, 10 sacred waters. So the medicinal herb fills about half of your life bar, and the sacred water fills your entire life bar. I also had the mirror, which is like a get-out-of-jail-free card. If you die, it revives you in real time. But you can only carry one at a time. Ended up never using it because it doesn't work on the final boss. So never used the mirror, uh, even though I had multiple opportunities to pick them up. So yeah, and the film as well. I was kind of kicking myself by the time I got to the end of the game because... Rich, I used Type 14 film for the entire game as far as combat goes. (laughs) Yeah, so did I. I had so much Type 90 film by the end of the game, and I never used it once throughout the entire game because I used my zero film on the final boss, and that was that. So they give you all these different types of film, 
in the spirit of playing a survival horror game and doing that resource management that you might be used to, you think you're going to save your stronger film for harder enemies. And at least on the normal or easy difficulty or whatever it was, Type 14 got the job done. So very interesting dynamic there. And it's funny to hear that we both did the same thing. Yeah, and I think it says a little about this game and the fact that there's not really any sub-bosses in this game. I mean, there's some special fights that trigger, but I would say that there's no boss battles in this game other than the final boss. So you're not really being forced to use this more powerful film. And so you never use it, and I think that's a big part of the reason why, right? Yeah. You know, most of the fights are easy. Some of them might last longer than others, but there's really never a threat of dying in this game. I mean, you'll get hit. You'll say, okay, well, I could probably get hit about two or three more times, and then I'll just replenish my energy. So even if you do get attacked some, and in some instances it can be frustrating, I don't see any way for someone not being able to beat this game. The resources are extremely plentiful. combat another big part of this game were the puzzles and sean i know that typically between the two of us i'm the one who's more into puzzles and you're the one that is a little less into puzzles and especially if some of those are difficult so i'm curious how you felt about the puzzles in this game well it's true what you said about my dislike of puzzles but That notwithstanding, I actually did most of the puzzles in this game on my own. 
the reason for that is I wanted to play this game with as little walkthrough assistance as possible. And I did that for about the first five chapters. And then chapter five was extremely frustrating to me. And I ended up picking up a walkthrough and using it basically on the entire back half of the game. So I ended up kind of enjoying the puzzles. I didn't think they were that obtuse. They weren't like Silent Hill moon logic type puzzles. The pinwheel puzzle I thought was very intuitive where you have to spin the wheels and match the colors together. Yeah. There was the one with the dolls in the doll maker's house. It's almost like a sliding piece puzzle, which I know some people don't like, but it's just similar to that. But you only have to get one piece into the right place and all the rest are just fodder to move out of the way and you have to figure out how to do it. None of them really perplexed me. There was one that was like kind of easy, the one with the books where you have to collect the five books and then there's right, there's right. a highlighted word in each book and that's where you put it on the shelf. That one I thought was even on the easy side. So I actually like the puzzles in this game, believe it or not. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I liked it okay. A little repetition with the pinwheels. I know you have to do that twice in the game. Yeah. And then the um, the doll statues that you have to face each other, kind of similar as well. So yeah. I, I do wish there was a little more variety, but I didn't hate the puzzles in this game. You know, they were fairly simple toward the end of the game where you have to collect the uh, pinwheel stones and I got them and I tried to open the tree up and I only had three of the four stones. So I had to backtrack and figure out what I had done wrong. Mm. And I actually had to consult a guide because my first thought was, okay, when I use that one and the first pinwheel puzzle in the game, Maybe I was supposed to take it back out because with the projectors, you could replace the film. So what had happened is I had killed that banshee in the graveyard and I didn't go back to the grave or the box that she came out of and pick it up. Yeah. So there was that moment of me spinning my wheels and getting really, really frustrated. So I did have to look at a walkthrough and figure out where I made my misstep. But once I figured that out, it was okay. And I think the game does a really good job of guiding you through it. It's a linear game, but it doesn't feel as linear as it is. And uh, I never had the problem of not knowing what to do or where to go in the game. So for me, I really didn't have to consult any walkthroughs in this game other than to um, figure out that moment where I had done something wrong. That's really good to hear. And again, if I didn't feel like at a certain point, I felt like the game, like, all right, let's get a move on here. Like I wasn't, I was only playing it like a couple nights a week and wasn't getting as far as fast as I wanted to. And then chapter five just perplexed me to a great degree. So yeah, I wish I could have gone through it without a walkthrough. If I had more time, if this wasn't a playthrough game, I might have. But again, I also might've rage quit in chapter five if this wasn't a playthrough game. So <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I'm glad I did what I did and played it the way I played it. I remember you posted something about playing it in 20 minute segments. And I was kind of wondering what you meant by that. So that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. So, and the 20 minute segments thing was like, I would sit down and try to play and then I would end up getting to a save point and the relief of accomplishing a, just a couple tasks and then finding a save point was enough that it's like, all right, I just want to quit now. It's it, kind of a weird feeling. It just happens every once in a while for me with games, especially like this. 
it's not that I'm disliking playing it or dying to stop playing it. It's just, I don't know. It's just like a relief to get to a save point. And it's like, all right, I better just stop <laughs> now, you know? Yeah, well, let's talk about those save points during the game. They were um, kind of highlighted by these red lanterns that were in the game. There were a few that were outside that, you know, I would typically save at any time I walked by one. But then inside the house, there were several that were lying around in different areas. And a lot of times you would come back to those. So um, just kind of curious on your take with the save states. Did they have enough or not? And, uh, you know, would you have preferred just an auto save for this game? I definitely would have, <laughs> I definitely would have preferred. Definitely always prefer the auto save, right? Yeah, or save states. Like if I was emulating it and could just save wherever I wanted would have been completely ideal. I learned the hard way about the hard saves early in the game where I lost a half hour to 45 minutes of progress where I just kind of died carelessly and was sent way back. And I learned my lesson right there and I started saving every opportunity I could. You would catch me like running from one end of whatever house I was in to the other to hit the save point after doing just like one thing. <laughs> But having said that, I think they were pretty well positioned. Yeah. Some of them were like right in the middle of a central area of a house that you were in. So if you're going, you know, upstairs, downstairs, around, there there would be one or two save points within the house that were in convenient locations. There were also save points outside that I leaned on a lot. Yeah, me There's too. There's one in the beginning area outside of the village that you can use a lot. And there's a few in the village outdoors. Like, I guess as I explain this, I'm like, oh, there's save points here and also there and also over here. So I can't really complain that there weren't enough for sure. Yeah, I felt the same way. I thought the game did a good job of save pointing. Like you said, um, you definitely would prefer an autosave for this game. But at the same time, if I did die, which I did a few times, there was one enemy that you can't kill that's inside one of the houses oh, that yeah. I was trying to kill. And it touches you one time and you're dead. And, you know, that's one of the things you don't think of, I guess, sometimes in these games is that you can run by enemies and just avoid enemies just because when you kill an enemy in this game, I should say, you get points. And the better your camera shot, the more points you get. You can use that to power up your camera. You collect these orbs, and then you can fill in these orbs to power up different aspects of the camera and make it stronger. So all these adjustments that I would do to my camera, I would always stop by these save points and just click it in and do a quick save so that if anything happened, I would still have all this progress and all of these upgrades, but I think that one time was the only time that I had any issues with the save points when I got killed by that single shot ghost. But uh, other than that, I really thought they were well done in this game and always in convenient locations, like you mentioned. Speaking of running through the house, let's talk about backtracking in this game. Not a Metroidvania by any means, but... You do a lot of backtracking in this game, not only from the current house that you're in, but you may end up going to other houses as well. I'm kind of curious, did you find this part of the game frustrating, or do you think that it was rather well done? I thought it was good in that, you know, there's not a lot of, like, square footage to this game, if that makes sense. Like, the, enti no, the yeah. entire area of the game consists of this small village and the houses within it, and then a couple underground areas and a cemetery and other very small areas. So I think they must have had kind of a less is more mentality here. And then mm -hmm. 
the exploration in the game comes within the houses and you'll spend a lot of time in each house. And like you were saying, you'll go back to a house that you were in and do more puzzling and stuff. So I didn't even think of it really as backtracking because it was more of a linear progression where you just go to the same place. It's weird. I wouldn't call it backtracking because it wasn't like a singular thing. I always think of backtracking as like, oh, you need that one thing, but it's way back in the place you were. And, oh, man, you know, I got to go get that. But in this game, it's like, no, you're in this house again, but you're doing new things. So I didn't have a problem with it at all. I think it really helped move the story along. And it's almost like they recycled the houses in a good way from a development standpoint. Very creative. No, I, I completely agree with that. And we'll talk about that a little more when we get to graphics and environment. Yeah, I, I didn't really find what I was calling backtracking very frustrating. I think the game does a good job of, you know, sometimes you'll come to a door and it'll say, oh, you need this key to get in. And so you'll have to go throughout the house, find this key, and sort of track back to that place again to open up a new part of the house. Like I said, I thought it was very intuitive. You're not overwhelmed with items and things like that that might make it frustrating or say, oh, where do I go next? The houses are so condensed and not so vast as that you don't know where to go back to next and you can't figure out those pieces of the puzzle. You would go over certain areas many, many times, but it never felt frustrating and it never felt like backtracking in a larger scheme game like a Metroidvania, you know, such as Castlevania Symphony of the Night, where you'd be on one side of the entire board, pick up an item that you need, and have to remember that the area that you can now access is completely on another side of the map. So, yeah, for me, it wasn't frustrating, but, uh, you know, definitely a part of the game. And it was great of the developers to make such good use of a house that had a limited amount of rooms in it, but the sort of backtracking that I mentioned made the game more fulfilling and maximized what they can do in this game. I thought that was really nice. Before we get into the graphics and environments of the game, I did want to talk a little bit about the enemies in this game. And I had mentioned uh, previously in the show that this game was very Japanese. If you weren't reminded of such horror movies as The Ring, (laughs) then something was very wrong. There is a lot of Japanese characters from traditional haunted Japanese folklore in this game. And from what I read, this is something that the developers really, really want to focus on and make this series very, very Japanese. Which may explain why we didn't get some of these games in North America. But uh, Sean, I'm just kind of curious how you felt about the enemies in this game. I thought they were well done in that they're all ghosts or spirits or however you want to say it, but there was a variety to them, even though on the surface at first glance, they all look the same because they're the gray and white apparitions, so to speak, that are very traditional, even in Western culture, as what a ghost looks like. But knowing the context of the collectibles, whatever house you're in has a theme and a story and the enemies are part of whatever that is for whatever scenario you're in. So I felt that each one had character, even the ones that were recurring, like the villagers, they were very special because they only popped up like three or four times in the game, depending on if you uh, stumbled into the wrong area, they would attack you. But a lot of the battles with them were optional. So 
with things like that, I didn't find that they came up too repetitively. And even the one like mini boss in the one house, I think it was called the um, the Crimson Kimono. You have to fight her four times. And I was just having a blast every time I ran into her. That was actually one of the times I was really having a good time with the combat system. I got her movements down. I knew how to beat her. And by the fourth time, and one of the times is optional, but I got her all four times because I was having such a good time fighting her. So yeah, the the enemy variety is like perfect in this game, if you ask me. I agree. I, I really love the variety in this game. And I would say that one of my favorite enemies was the one that had committed suicide by falling down the stairs yeah. or jumping off the balcony. And when you would fight this one, it would disappear and it would just keep trying to fall on top of you. So you had to keep moving. And uh, yes. yeah, it was just all disjointed and stuff after it hit the ground. It was really, really creepy, but it was a cool addition to the game. It was something that you only saw one time. So yeah, I, I thought the variety was very nice. You would get a little bit of repetition, but not as much as you get in a lot of games. I thought it was very, very well done. I did enjoy the enemies in this game, and including the final boss, which I thought was very creative and fun, and we'll talk about in a few minutes. Yeah, and I just want to say the woman falling, Stubbs commented on the forum that that was unintentionally funny to him. So <laughs> you and I, I think, found it pretty creepy, but he thought it was unintentionally funny. I just had to mention that. Oh, I thought it was kind of funny, too. Yeah, <laughs> it was weird. It was very odd. It's something that I've never seen in a game before. Yeah. All right. So let's go ahead and move into the graphics and environments in this game. Sean, as you've already mentioned, um, this game takes place in a haunted village and also in a very enclosed environment. Just to kind of give my two cents... It's such a small scale of an area. It's a small village. There's only three main houses, a temple, a few like small shacks. But at the same time, you're still playing a game that you're going to get eight to ten hours out of in this very small condensed area. I think they did an incredible job with what they had to work with. And it made the game feel tense. And it made the game worth playing because it felt long enough. But it, it seemed like they stretched as much out of this small village that they could. And I thought they did an incredible job with it. But one of the things that's really noticeable about the game and something that we talked about when we spoke about Gears of War last month was the color palette, right? This sort of bleakness this game had a very, very heavy grayscale. Oh, yeah. In some scenes, literally. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I think the color palette is good in this game. It does give off classic haunted house vibes, but there are some accents of color throughout the game. Of course, the crimson butterfly itself is a good example of that. Right. Mio and Mayu's clothing, at least their default costumes, have a little bit of color to them. There's other instances of color, but I think they're used selectively and to a great effect. I think the game is drab to an extent, but it's because it's supposed to be that way. It's a horror game. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the color palette really fits the mood of what they're trying to accomplish in this game. Now, I did feel like there were areas where I had a little bit of difficulty discerning between areas that you could actually access. Some of the doors were on a very similar color palette to the walls, and sometimes I did have a little bit of difficulty distinguishing those. I don't know. Did you have the same thing? 
Yeah, that happened to me a few times, but did you use the map screen a lot? No, I didn't. I mean, we should definitely mention the map, but I really didn't use the map in this game. Again, this is something I discovered kind of late in my playthrough. I believe I'm remembering this correctly, but there's like a hotkey. One of the buttons on the controller, at least on the Xbox, I believe is hotkeyed to just bring up the map. So you don't have to pause and then go to the map, select the map, find where you are. It's just a one button press. So once I discovered that, if you had any problems like finding a door... The map was a good way to figure that out. But yeah, I also did the mash the A button throughout the entire game because we should mention the items which we said are plentiful usually are denoted by a little blue orb that's on the ground or on a shelf or whatever. Yes. But a lot of times there isn't that and there will just be an item that's invisible completely. So this is one of those types of games where you can just kind of rub against all the... (laughs) objects in the room while mashing the a button hoping that you'll pick something up so that's another way to find doors pretty easily as well yeah good point um one of the things i wanted to talk about also with the graphics in the environment were these falling or moving objects that you haven't touched sometimes you would step out of a room and like a book or something would fall off the bookcase. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely. I I thought that was like an awesome touch. I mean, it's not like a jump scare, but at the same time, it makes you really, really uneasy. I thought that was really awesome part of this game. Now, the game does have some jump scares in it, especially with some of the cut scenes in the game, which I I found really fun and uh, very neat. Yeah, like a lot of people, I'm not a huge fan of jump scares at this point. They're very overdone in the culture to where there's a million YouTube videos about why horror movies suck now because they're all jump scares. But I think they were used selectively enough in this game that they didn't bother me. And when we get to the sound effects, there's definitely some shrillness in the sound effects that adds to that. But we'll get to that when we get there. Well, let's go ahead and talk about it now. You betcha. So as far as um, sound effects, one of the things I wanted to note is that the music is used very selectively in this game, right? So there's music in the title screen and the most musical part of the game to me was actually the save screen. I don't know if you noticed that, but like one of the places where like, I don't know what you would call it, like regular music plays is in the save (laughs) screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the rest of the game, it's used very selectively. And Mm -hmm. I think this minimalistic approach to music worked really well for this game. And I think it was appropriately creepy where it needed to be. And Mm -hmm. what was there is definitely good for the game. And then what I wanted to note about sound effects was that some of the sound effects were pretty shrill, but in a good way. Like, again, the blasting of the camera when you did the right thing was awesome. But then, like, there were some really shrill sound effects when you were in menus that were, like, kind of annoying. And then, again, those audio jump scares you as much as whatever pops up on the screen sometimes. So, not a complaint. I'm just saying it's part of the genre, basically. But the sound effect plays as much of a part in a jump scare as what's coming up on the screen. Yeah. That was worth noting. Absolutely. And I completely agree with you. I actually went back and listened to the soundtrack of this game and the majority of it is just this very eerie ambient music it's nothing that is very provoking you know it's sort of easygoing 
But then there are these other places where the music is frantic. And I think the game does a really nice job of keeping you off balance. You know, like some areas it's light and other areas it's like really intense. And so I feel like that really heightens the experience of a game. And especially survival horror such as this, you don't know what's coming around every corner. So when it's very light, it just sort of builds up that intensity. You don't have to have that frantic music all the time to really build up the mood of a story. And it really works with the intent of this game, I think. And uh, yeah, I, I love the sound design and music of this game. Now, would this be a soundtrack I would buy? No. I mean, you know, uh, unless I ran a haunted house, maybe that would be the only time that I would buy this soundtrack. We talk a lot about music being adequate for a game, and I think the word adequate would really misrepresent the music of this game. I think it's perfect. I agree. So we discussed the major elements of the game, and it's time for us now to get into our final thoughts. Sean, I did want to talk a little bit about the final boss battle and get your impressions on that, and then also discuss the three different types of endings before we actually give our final impressions of the game. So what are your thoughts on that final boss battle? Yeah, the final boss battle was interesting because I think it's the one misstep that the developers made as far as the checkpointing where the save points were. I really thought there should have been a save point outside of that main chamber where the boss was, the Mm -hmm. the final boss, because you have to run through this gauntlet of what are called mourners, which are some of the hardest enemies in the game. And there's like seven or eight of them that you have to walk through these catacombs to get to. And now I'm remembering, too, I wanted to mention that the boss before the final boss was kind of a pain in the ass as well. And in a way, much harder than the actual final boss. But at least once you beat him, you can save your game. Was that the priest? Yes. So, and in that boss battle, I just ran around like crazy until I could get any shot. I wasn't trying to get a fatal frame. I just chipped away at him for like half an hour or whatever. But then after him, you can save your game. But then every time you die on the final boss, you have to run through this gauntlet of mourners, which my tactic was to just run right through them, take the damage, heal myself as I went because I was overstocked on healing items, as we were saying before. Which doesn't matter because the final boss kills you in one shot no matter what. So (laughs) the first time I got to the final boss, I died four times in a row. And not to say I rage quit, but I was like, okay, this just isn't happening. So I actually took a break for about, I don't know, four or five hours. And I came back and I got him on the first try. So 
the way the final boss is, you're in this really scary, like deep depths of a cave and there's this shrine with candles everywhere. Very creepy. Mm-hmm. And he comes at you and you have to hit him at exactly the right point where he raises his hand to grab you and you have to get a fatal frame. If you don't get a fatal frame, you're dead. Game over. Back to the save point. Back through the catacombs. So it's easy once you figure out what you have to do. But if you get nervous and you mess up your timing, you're just going to, you know, geek yourself out and die every time, which is what I was doing. But then I ended up getting it, was happy to beat the game. And then I went ahead and watched the other ending on YouTube. So, (laughs) (laughs) And I watched the chapter zero final boss as well, which looked like another huge pain in the ass. Glad I didn't have to do that. So... The endings are both equally devastating. I think they actually did a really good job. There's no good endings for this game. There's basically two bad endings, right? And they're Mm -hmm. both different in how they play out. In the normal difficulty, you beat that final boss I was talking about, and your sister Mayu is actually possessed by Sae, who... In this village, they have a curse where they have to sacrifice one of the twins to fend off. What are they fending off? Some kind of great evil. Just an evil spirit. Yeah. Yeah, That's how they um, supplicate it is to um, feed it a twin every 10 years. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess what you would call the canon ending is that your player character, Mio, strangles Mayu because she's possessed by the original spirit of one of the twins so Mm -hmm. that's a pretty bleak ending right (laughs) yeah but wait till you hear about the other ending so there's this thing in the lore that you keep catching hints of it where the people say don't look back don't look at the pit and they say what's in the pit that's so terrible that you can't look at it and in the nightmare mode ending you actually save mayu and then the two twins are sitting on a bench they're just talking to each other and mayu says okay mio let's go and mio stands up and her eyes are covered cuz she looked back and now she has no vision again they both survive in that ending but it was just a shocker when she stood up even though i knew the lore and i knew what had happened to see that was pretty cool it was a real gut punch even on a YouTube video, <laughs> that, that wasn't the ending I got. But even seeing it on a YouTube, YouTube, I was like, whoa. I'm with you. You know, you and I are the type of people, as we've mentioned on the show before, we don't like the um, sunshine and unicorn fart endings to a game. And I thought both of these endings were fairly tragic in their own way. Now, I don't know if you know this, Sean, but there's actually a third ending to the game. Oh, Tell me about it. Yeah, technically it's the same as the canonical ending that you were talking about, which is the one where you strangle Mayu and you escape the village. But you can actually go through the tree and leave without her. (laughs) (laughs) However, you get captured in doing this and you are brought back to her where you do strangle her. And then, of course, you get the same ending that isn't the ending that you get by finishing on Difficult. So I'm with you, man. I thought these endings were really great. You are playing a survival horror game. 
the ending should be bleak. It shouldn't be all this happiness. It has a touch of happiness in it in that you survive and that you've basically been protected by your sister. And in a way, she helps you escape the village as the Crimson Butterfly. I think the ending has enough strife and sadness to make you really reflect on it and think. And uh, as I move away from this game... I feel like that part of the story is what brings me back into thinking there were things that I didn't really care about in this game, but thinking about how it ended made it a really great experience for me. Cool. All right. So as for my general final thoughts on this game, this is one of those ones that, again, it's on my shelf for the collector value of it. And I've had them for so long that I didn't even remember what systems I had the games on. It was something I've always wanted to play, and it was a good opportunity to knock out one of these games for our October playthrough. I really like the concept of a survival horror game that skews to the easy side as far as resource management. One of the things I really don't like about the early like Resident Evil games is how hard it is that you have to have the ink ribbons to save your game. So you can only save your game if you have this item, right? Yeah. So things like that, I know some people love them and that's great, but like, that's just not my jam. So to play a game like this, that's kind of on the easy side was really great. I felt like I got all the trappings of a survival horror game with the controls, the fixed screens, all the stuff in the gameplay that we were talking about earlier. Having said that, it did have its frustrations. There were quite a few times in the game where I didn't know where to go and I had to look up a walkthrough. And there were times when even a walkthrough was confusing me and I didn't know exactly what to do. And I had to look at like three different walkthroughs at one point because some of them are going for completionist runs. And I was just looking for like how to get through the story and everything got very confusing and I got very frustrated. And also there were frustrating elements to the combat that I talked about, like trying to get a fatal frame on certain spirits felt like it was either glitched or it was damn near impossible and like way above the difficulty that it should have been. So there were portions of that that I didn't like. And then, of course, if I could change one thing about this game, it would be putting a save point outside of the final boss's chamber because having to run through that tunnel five times was just annoying. But having said all that, man, I got to say, like, I love the aesthetic of this game. I love that you play as these two Japanese twin girls like that's right in my wheelhouse. I like the Japanese culture aspect of it in general, and I am glad to have played it. But I don't know if this would turn me into like a major fan of the franchise if I'm going to run back and play the first game or the third one. You know, I may be the most interested in playing the one on the Wii U because I love the Wii U and it's going to be in HD and all that stuff. So maybe that one might be the next one I try. So having said all that, yeah, it doesn't turn me into a huge fan of the franchise. It doesn't really change my mind on survival horror in general. It's not one of my favorite genres. I just like the aesthetic of it. I like horror in general. So I would recommend this game to people who like survival horror. That's for darn sure, because I know people who like survival horror like this game. So if you're into the genre and you haven't played this game, you should. And if you want to challenge, those higher difficulty levels are available for you. So again, I would give this a thumbs up with the caveat that I really had some frustrations. But again, think of it as an 80-20 love-hate relationship. 
So how about you? Yeah, before I get into my final thoughts, I wanted to mention my experience with the final battle because I didn't oh, yeah. really get into that. Unlike you, after I battled the priest, I didn't save my game. I didn't think about oh. going back into another room and saving my game. However, also unlike you, I beat the final boss on the first try. That's good. <laughs> this was a little bit of redemption from my Gears of War struggle. <laughs> nice. I actually used the zero film and I only had to hit him like four times. It was right. ridiculous how few times that you had to hit that final boss before finishing the game. But yeah, I didn't have to do that final run again, but I do agree with you in that there should have been a save state at least close to that final boss battle, if not right before it. You know, when I got into that big room with the candles, I was walking all over looking for something because I knew the shit was going to hit the fan. <laughs> you know, and that this was pretty much the ending of the game at that point. But as far as the game's concerned, um, I'm a bit in the same boat with you. I think after I walked away from the game and had a little bit of time to digest it, I think I'm probably more 90-10%. I definitely would play Fatal Frame 3 if we ever decided to do that for a playthrough. The game was interesting enough. I love the mechanics. I love, love, love the story of this game. It's fantastic. I thought the combat at times was a little boring and a little repetitive. If you're looking for a game that has really intense combat, this might not be the game for you. It's very slow-paced. It's very slow-moving. But like you said, you have to figure out the enemies and at what points you're going to be able to get that fatal frame shot in. So there is a little bit of strategy to it, but overall, with all the health items and the slow pace of the combat, I would say this is a game that's fairly easily beatable by anyone that's out there. A lot of people say that this is the scariest survival horror game ever made, and I don't know if it's me and being so numb to horror films because I've seen so many, but I didn't think it was all that scary. I thought the mood of the game was very creepy, and there are a lot of unknown aspects about the game. The Japanese ghosts were fantastic, and if you enjoyed a film like The Ring, I think these enemy types would be something that you would really enjoy. But to say it's the scariest game out there, I don't know if I could agree with that. But of course, I haven't played a lot of survival horror games, so uh, maybe I'm not the right person to make that decision. But overall, I give the game a glaring review. I think it was a lot of fun. I'm super glad that we finally got to play something from the series. And, uh, you know, maybe down the road we might look at playing another game. Although I never played the first game, I've heard tales and some of our other participants did play it. And from what I understand, the mechanics are a little rougher around the edges. But I think had I played the first game before playing the second game, I might appreciate the second game a little more. But yeah, um, if you're in a survival horror and a fan of something that's a little off the beaten track and a game that's fairly short and easy, I would say give this one a shot. Awesome. And play Spirit Camera. A lot of people hate it, but it's really fun and it's only like two hours long, so you don't have anything to lose. And I'll also say for collectors, if you grab a copy of Spirit Camera, make sure it has the book with it, not the instruction manual, but there's like an ARG book that you need to play the game. So. I'll have to check my copy. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, let's get into what we're doing in November and December, shall we? Sure. 
All right. So in November, we will be playing Bioshock 2. This is the two-year anniversary of us playing Bioshock 1. So it's cool to revisit a sequel of a game that we've done as a playthrough in the past. I actually already played this game to completion for the second time uh, just about two weeks ago. It's a very fast-playing game, so once you sit down with it, you might be able to beat it in just a few sessions because it's very hard to put down. I beat it in three days. Rich, I know that you lingered on Fatal Frame a little bit, so I'm guessing you haven't had a chance to fire up Bioshock 2 yet? No, not yet. Yeah, but don't worry. Like I said, you'll blast right through it just like all of us did on the forum. So yeah, Bioshock 2 for November. Rich, what are we doing in December? Well, December, talking about going off the beaten track, we are doing it this time. We are not doing a December competition, but instead we're doing a group playthrough and we decided to do a phone game. This will be new territory for us. And what better game to play than a phone game that's really hot right now? And that is the murder mystery game Among Us. Now, this is a game that my kids actually introduced me to, and my daughter loves playing it. She'll probably join in on our playthrough. She said something about joining in on the podcast, but you know, I don't know about that. Oh, that would be so cool. <laughs> well, maybe I'll get her to record a little segment or something about the okay. game. Yeah, it should be an all-around fun time. Be sure to check out the website because we're going to get together and decide what nights we want to get together and play the game. It should be a lot of fun. Basically, you're a bunch of astronauts that are in outer space, and one or two of you, depending on how you set the game up, is infested with an alien, and you don't know. So it's sort of like The Thing by John Carpenter, you know? Yeah. So I think it's going to be a great time in December. It's going to be a really nice community building game. And hopefully maybe we can even set up a Discord channel so that we can talk to each other during the game, which I think would be a lot of fun. So I don't know about you, Sean, but I'm really looking forward to this uh, group event. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting together with our friends to play a game together. And also because it'll be a little bit of a, a respite. Especially you, as far as organizing a competition and um, what we do traditionally. So I think it'll be a good, fun, casual playthrough to do throughout the holidays. But speaking of a respite, Rich, you have something to say about the month of January. Yeah, Sean, I don't know if you realize this or not, but this upcoming February will be seven years years of podcasting for us. I didn't know I know it's hard to believe. (laughs) And during this time, we haven't taken a break from gameplay or podcasting. I think one month we missed a podcast. We decided not to do one. But as far as gameplay is concerned, we've been going strong for seven years in doing this. And just wanted to take a month off just to um, get my head straight with everything that's going on with COVID right now and homeschooling and all that. It's just been a uh, very tough and stressful time. We are not going away. I don't want anyone to think that. We are just taking a month break, a well-deserved seven-year break. And so in January, we will not be doing a playthrough title. So uh, looking forward to that rest and looking forward to picking up in the new year. 
Yes, and I will just say because of this break we're taking, it will be very important for listeners who only listen to the podcast to follow me on Twitter at RFG Playcast, follow Rich at The Single Banana, and log on to RF Generation and read the blogs and look for the news articles because the site news will tell you what game we are playing in February. So keep your eyes out for that, and we will see you then. With that, we wrap up another episode. Thank you, as always, for listening, and a special thanks to all of our participants. In November, we're revisiting one of our favorite franchises two years after we played the first game. Bioshock 2 takes place after the first game and in the same setting, but was developed by a different studio than the original. Please join us as we dive into this controversial title, available on most modern platforms and PC. Be sure to log on to the forums at rfgeneration.com to join this playthrough, and we'll see you next time on the Playcast. Basketball. Bow. Blah, blah, bling, blame